This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Wednesday morning to you. Man, have we got a great uh, day for you. Set up, ready to go. Would you believe the woodpeckers, those cute little woodpecker birds that just pound on your house all day, are they the answer to concussions in football? Does the woodpecker have the solution that the NFL needs? Well, we've got a guest that thinks so. Uh, interesting research about a woodpecker and how how does a woodpecker pound their head against a tree all day and not get a concussion? They've got a trick. We'll be talking about that in a few mem- moments with Dr. David Smith, how woodpeckers will save the NFL. <laughs> By the way, it sounds like a great name for an NFL team. The Washington Woodpeckers. Maybe that's what they ought to call the, instead of the Redskins. The Washington Woodpeckers. I think it'd be a little less offensive. <laughs> I have a feeling that somehow that that uh, name would still be offensive. We've got uh, that coming up. Plus, the Donald, uh, the Trumpster, is on the way to Mexico in, to enlighten the president of Mexico. That'll be good learning for everybody. So think of those reporters covering him today. <laughs> There's no every other campaign. There's a press airplane. You just get on just get and on you plane. fly. Uh-huh. There's no Trump press corps airplane. Yeah. You have to find your own way to wherever you're going, which is fine. Get to Mexico, have the meeting. So you got to go to Mexico and then somehow get back to Arizona. For the other meeting. For the speech he's giving later today. Yeah. I, I can't believe he's doing it. He's going to Mexico. Well, I mean, he, that's... he was invited. Well, yeah. We'll hear some some uh, what Mike Pence. Mike wife. Pence has got a. He's he's going to enlighten us about uh, his meeting, Donald Trump's meeting with the president of Mexico. He explains it all. It's great. We'll, we'll get to all of that and uh, other fun news, other interesting headlines, and some of it you even need. I have bovine news today. <gasps> Two really? separate stories. Pigs are in the news. Bovine. It's cows. Bovine. Oh, sorry. What what did you say? Bovine. Bovine. My mind went straight to pigs, too. Don't feel too bad. Why is that? Hungry? Equine horse. Mm -hmm. Bovine cow? Yeah. I always thought it was pig. Okay. Don't know why. Mm. I think maybe it was talking about, I don't know, Mexico. I was like, where are we going with this? Um, So I have some pig. pig. Now you have me saying it. Some cow updates coming up later today. I also have a pizza diet. That you need oh, to hear about. I like a good pizza diet. Yeah. We will uh, we'll get to all of this interesting news, but first, of course, let's get to the headlines with Sadie Nelson. Sadie, Donald Trump will make a trip to Mexico to meet with Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto, who previously compared Trump to Adolf Hitler. This will occur hours before Trump's planned speech on immigration today. Hillary Clinton also reportedly invited to meet with the president. The State Department said Tuesday that the 30 emails possibly related to the 2012 Benghazi attack were recovered during the FBI's recent investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. According to the AP, State Department will take at least till the end of September to review the emails not previously disclosed by Clinton and evaluate any classified information before publicly releasing the notes. 
Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz defeated law professor Tim Canova in their Florida Democratic primary, the Associated Press projects. Schultz stepped down in July as the Democratic National Committee chairwoman after emails critical of Bernie Sanders were leaked. And finally, in your drone news. Ooh, yes. A Canadian drone owner showed off his drone's surprising power by using it to pull him around in a kayak. Oh. Yes. The Montreal resident, um, we talked about him earlier. He previously caught a massive smallmouth bass with, yeah. his, <laughs> uh, <laughs> with his drone, posted a video to YouTube showing how he tethered his drone to his kayak and had it fly out over the water for an internet first. And he claims that more lazy people will now go kayaking because of this discovery. Well, huh. yeah. Now you can be towed around by your... Your fun little drone. Thanks, Sadie. Yeah. That's nothing wrong with that. I mean... I saw another video recently. A guy was being pulled down a river in a like a raft or a, a canoe, and he had a radio-controlled tugboat. Oh, really? So he's just sitting in the boat, just, you know, just controlling, pushing it forward down the... And he didn't have to do anything. What's happening to us? We're becoming lazy. We're yeah, going we to be invaded, and we won't be able to do anything about it. Aliens will take over. I'm guessing that guy's on the pizza diet if he can't even... Row his own boat. The pizza diet is real, and it will fix all of your health problems. Will it really? Does it? Does it? Is it still going to be like the the meat pizza? Is it? We'll get to it. Okay, I have a feeling it's not real pizza. <laughs> I mean, if it's a diet, it's not probably real. A diet in the sense of a plan towards eating. Oh, not as you're, you know, eating yeah. quinoa or something. So Donald Trump on yes. the way to Mexico. I've heard of this individual. He's going to Mexico, and I can't figure out exactly why. He was invited. Well, one thing is the president of Mexico is uh, President Enrique Peña Nieto. Yes. Uh, is He's also struggling in his own polls down there. He is. He's kind of underwater. Mm-hmm. So they neither of them really have anything to lose. Yeah. Does that mean they're going to gain anything? I don't know. So, you know, with Trump, the last uh, week or so where he's all of a sudden started talking to different minority groups and how I'm going to help you, I'm going to fix your neighborhoods, you can now walk down the street and not get shot, yeah. Dwayne Wade's cousin gets shot, he kind of yeah. goes, look, I told you. you know, look, if you vote for me, I'll so take care of Dwayne Wade's the I, cousin's the, the idea is he's not necessarily speaking to the minority groups, he's speaking to the middle-class, college-educated Republicans who think he's racist. Yeah. He's trying, he's to, trying to reach out and show them, his... see, I'm doing all this stuff so I'm not racist. So part of giving his immigration speech today, you go to Mexico and speak with the world leader, president of Mexico, and then come back and say, look, well, this is what we discussed. So is he hoping to come back with the president of Mexico saying, yeah, we'll pay for the wall? Yeah, we no, got it. We'll I don't. Pay for I, it. I don't think he's going that far, but I right. think he's trying to say we have an open discussion. It also makes him look like he's does. a world leader. He's able to talk to other world leaders. Let's say that they actually created a negotiation that, like, that gave at least some new ideas. Right. A partnership. Hmm. Remember when Mitt Romney went to Europe? Yeah, he went to what? He went to. I think he shows up in London and did something odd and then he went to france and something <laughs> bad something happened and then, <laughs> and then it, it didn't go like it didn't go as planned right. but the idea is you're running for president so go places where you can meet with other world leaders look presidential yeah. and people can put you in that office in their mind i think mm. they're going to prank him and what do you think they're going to do well i bet they're going to maybe they'll all no one will show up at his event 
and he'll land. He'll pull his airplane into the hangar. No one will be there. I think they're going to erect a wall around him, and then he won't be able to get out. <laughs> or they'll show off all the pinatas people have been hitting of him recently. <laughs> That's sad. You don't. You never want to be on a you know the image on a pinata. It's just rough. He's one of the most popular ones. I don't know. You're full of candy, and you bring lots of children joy. What's yeah, wrong with they, that? Well, After they beat they you with a bath. Bash your face in, yeah. Until they create a gash in your gut, and then your candy floweth out. But re- you've given them joy. It's really quite a violent game that children play at parties. You know, it's <laughs> the whole pinata thing. Just something that, I don't know, it seems mm. violent. A little bit. And we're not big into violence in the United States, except guns. Well, but that's in the Constitution, so it's okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's something about piñatas in there, too. It's a constitutionally approved violence. So uh, Mike Pence, Donald's running mate, mm. is uh, he's going to give us some clarity on, on Donald's meeting with the Mexican president. To know Donald Trump is to know uh, uh, not, a, not your standard issue politician, but really a business leader that knows, you, you know, you, you first got to sit down with people. Uh, you got to look them in the eye. You got to tell them where you stand. They can they can uh, express their positions, and that's where real negotiations can begin. But make no mistake about it. I'm very confident that my running mate will be very clear uh, with President uh, Peña Nieto about uh, our priority of securing the border, building a wall, uh, making it clear that that we are going to have a new administration uh, that deals with and confronts not only illegal immigration but the flood of drugs and. The heartbreak of human trafficking that's coming across our borders. Yeah. He's going to handle it. He's doing just what a businessman does. He goes. He's going to a meeting. He's going to close a deal, at least strengthen relationships. Now, the question really is, what on earth is Hillary Clinton doing? I really do expect the meeting today is just a beginning of a conversation. And, you know, as uh, I, I don't know where Hillary Clinton is, I heard she's going to Cincinnati today, but uh, I think the American people can see quite a contrast between Donald Trump, who gets an invitation from a world leader, uh, drops what he's doing, even with a major speech on the schedule for tonight, uh, and heads down to Mexico to sit down with the president of that country to begin a conversation about, about how, we, uh, how we move the interests of the American people forward. Yeah. I mean, Hillary's just going to Cincinnati. Donald was invited by a world leader. And he's going to eat a taco bowl for lunch. Clinton was invited also. (laughs) Was she? Yes. She said she would be uh, meeting with President Nieto um, at an appropriate time, an appropriate date. Now's not appropriate. She'll find another time. She has a planned... She's got an event. Itinerary. I'm sure there's a fundraiser that's needed. She was in the Hamptons with... uh, Who was she there with? Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney was up there and Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, see? And she was raising money. She was doing her own world leadership thing. (sighs) But Donald's going to go down there and really, I think, try to straighten out some of his other remarks where he offended, I don't know, pretty much all of Mexico. But you brought up a good point, Jeff. He'll probably have a a taco bowl. (laughs) Oh, what is happening? Hillary Clinton is speaking at the American Legion National Convention. Oh, you got to go to that. In Cincinnati. Yeah, you got to go to that. Now, why isn't Donald there? Because he's talking in Arizona about immigration. And then. As he's trying to convince soccer moms that he's not racist. Right. Basically. He's, yeah, well, he said he's going to build the wall. He's going to build fi- the wall. And fix all the uh, discussion about his immigration plan last week that seemed to contradict everything he said before. Yeah. 
That's that's kind of what he's trying to do is walk it all back and establish again what is your policy. Yeah. Don't you see a difference between the two? Don't don't you feel like Donald is at least changing a little bit from what he was when this campaign first yeah. started? Yeah. Hillary seems to be about the same. Yeah. And in fact, just well, a lot of people think that that's a strength, right? Like she's consistent. Donald depends on the day. Donald just kind of depends on his mood. Do you know what we're finding out? What? They're both politicians. You know, it's weird. Yeah. It's really weird. Did you hear the whole New York Times editorial board is calling on Hillary Clinton to cut all ties with the Clinton Foundation? I read that. Right now. No more messing around. <laughs> Which would be the smart thing to do. Get it done. It looks, uh, even if there's nothing there, as yeah. she says, there's smoke but no fire, but yeah. that's not how smoke works. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know. But she's not going to do it. Not. Well, Bill Clinton said they will cut off fundraising if she is elected president. Yeah. Really? They're saying you got to do it right now. They're saying now so you don't continue the possible conflict of interest. And nothing – I mean it seems smart. They they pulled her out of the the day-to-day running, right, of she, it all yeah. before she was secretary of state. Or before she announced. Well, she she got back involved oh, after. She, she jumped back in. I think she stepped away when she started running again. The problem is is there's a lot of – a lot of things that look kind of uh, squirrely. Yeah, shady. At least funny words, squirrely. But, uh, but yeah. there's nothing shady there. There's nothing there there. I mean, it just depends on what the nothing definition that, of is. Nothing is. they can prove. Right. You know, it's. I think it, either way, it's going to be a really exhausting four years. And it's just the next couple months is going to get so uh, just worse in the sense you start debating face to face. But luckily, there's only three debates. Well, uh, technically, Trump hasn't accepted any of the invitations. Oh, that's true. To debate yet. So we'll see how that works. <laughs> he He's going to debate. And he's she's all ready for him because she's been, you know, having her psychologist figure out how to make him mad. <laughs> So you know that's that. going to be a good debate. <laughs> Again, not maybe not the best way to get a debate, a conversation happening. Yeah, is having all the stories be about how we're going to tick him off. Yeah, just want to set him off, see what happens. I don't think I don't think it'll work. I'm going to pull this pin on the grenade. We're going to roll it into the room and see what happens. That so, sounds like a good plan for a debate strategy. But less than about less than seventy days till the election. Yes. So you got plenty of time. To think I got about. my uh, notification that the ab- my uh, mail-in ballot will arrive at my house at some point. Excellent. They confirm the address before they send the the ballot. Um, is it is did it come through Russia? No, it came through uh, the U.S. mail. A lot of people are worried that Russia is running this. <laughs> Apparently, Arizona had no problems last night, even though their yeah. voter records were allegedly compromised by Russia. That was good news too. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, she she hung on to her seat in Florida. Well, the uh, the party, yeah, the the, the, the primary. primary, yeah. So did Rubio. He's yeah. he's he won his primary. So did uh, Mr. McCain. He took down the woman that said he's old. I'm a doctor. I know what happens when people get old, and I think he's going to go senile. Basically, is what she said. Man, that's rude. That was rude, but she was, you know, she lost by like sixty, seventy percent or something. She's all this happened while I was at uh, a court of honor. <laughs> good job. <laughs> Super good. Okay, well, we've got a great show. Today we're going to be talking woodpeckers. How does a woodpecker peck wood? No, that's a, that's a 
What's that? Alliteration. Uh, how does a woodpecker bang its head on a tree for hours at a time and not get a concussion? Isn't it how much wood could a, wood could a, could a woodpecker peck? peck? If a woodpecker could peck wood? Yeah. Yeah, that's the tongue. Yeah, that's a tongue twister. Today we'll be speaking about uh, maybe some of the some of the theory behind how the woodpecker does it. Maybe there's something to learn there about how the NFL could protect its football players. Stick with us, folks. Interesting learning ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Brings back such memories. Welcome back, folks. You know, traumatic brain injuries, also known as TBI and concussions, are a major cause of death and disability in the United States and contribute to about 30% of all injury deaths. With Will Smith's starring role as the Nigerian forensic pathologist in the movie Concussion, it's brought nationwide attention to the negative effects of TBI. But what can we do to prevent these types of injuries? Here to speak with us today is Dr. David Smith, president and CEO of Traumatic Brain Injuries. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Matt. Good to talk to you today. This, uh, boy, concussions have been in the news quite a bit uh, for about the last couple of years, at least. Um, I know they've been part of your life for a long time. What, what is there to learn from nature? Uh, woodpeckers, for example, uh, I've read some of your work about um, bringing up, there's much to learn how animals you know, bighorn sheep, ram heads, woodpeckers are banging their head all day long. How come they can do it, but our NFL football players and our military can't? Well, that's exactly right. Um, I was actually poised with the question about 10 years ago, kind of off the cuff and jokingly. I was at a conference at the Army Research Lab, and at the end of my presentation on an unrelated topic, somebody jokingly thought that the presentation was clever, and why don't clever people ever figure out brain injury, was what the military had asked. And, of course, one of the guys in the front row said, I think if somebody could figure out how a woodpecker can smack its head against a tree and fly away without a headache, we'd have the whole problem solved. Yeah. Well, everybody cracked up laughing except me. I love those types of conundrums, and I ended up uh, not having anyone paying me as a consultant, but uh, just basically see if I could figure out if God and nature had figured this out already. So I uh, immersed myself into all of the highly G-force tolerant animals, and the woodpecker being the, the most obvious one, um, and about nine months later came up with how, uh, how that must be happening and coined it slosh theory. Slosh theory. Um, okay, so first of all, too, what are some other G-force you know, uh, surviving animals? Woodpeckers, bighorn sheep, bighorn sheep. Right. Woodpeckers, uh, they smack their heads against trees 12,000 times a day, 80 million times in their lifespan. And they, they literally have a G-force of 1,200 Gs, where you and I might get a concussion one impact at 50 Gs. You're right, head ramming sheep are around Jeez. 500 Gs. But then there's all of the different predator birds. So there's owls, there's uh, even bats, which, of course, are a mammal, not a bird. You know, they're pulling 20 and 25 Gs at a time. And at least in a centrifuge in the military, most of us pass out when we're going and pulling 9 Gs in a centrifuge. 
So it was obvious to me that the answer was sitting in front of us and that there was an answer. For someone such as myself, who's always being tasked to try to, uh, you know, figure complex situations out, uh, you never really know if you're going to have an answer. You're going to try. But in this particular situation, you can just look at nature and know that there was an answer and that that mankind had obviously missed the mark on this one. Is it, and I guess explain the physiology of it, the brain is in a skull and it's not meant to stop quickly and or I guess even start quickly, right? It's not well, meant correct. to stop or start because it'll, it'll bruise, it'll bang against the interior of the, of the skull. Well, is that right. how it works? And the, the te- yeah, the, the, the whole topic is called uh, hydrodynamics. And actually NASA was the one to first figure this out way back in the 1960s. They were having catastrophic effects of sending rocket ships into outer space because the liquid fuel containers would dissipate and then the fuel level would d- decrease and all the energies could actually be absorbed from the rocket engines and they would explode. Mm. So a sloshing fluid uh, moving around inside of a moving container was deemed a slosh. All, all I did was take somebody else's brilliance and throw it over here into mankind. We have yeah. moving containers called skulls, and we're filled with mostly liquid up there. It's venous and arterial blood, but as well as CSF, and then brain. Hmm. So it may be that the brain's the innocent bystander, and really the problem is, is the fluid-filled aspect of the brain. The slosh theory. Um, so then... Apparently, these other animals, these birds, they they also have, I guess, they have more cushioning in because they have they have less slosh. Is that the theory? Well, in a woodpecker's case, it does. It actually has a decreased amount of intracranial space. But what most of these guys have is what I kind of connected the dots and found the thread. They all had ways of mitigating or altering the fluid volume inside their brain. Mm. And it turns out that as I started looking into woodpeckers, they they called them actually uh, cavity-nesting birds. And I had no idea what a cavity-nesting bird was. And I started actually looking into that, and every single one on the list were these highly G-force-tolerant predator birds. And I thought, oh, my God, that that sounds odd. And Mm started looking into it further and started to realize that, uh, you know, in a cavity inside of a woodpecker nest, there's huge levels of carbon dioxide, nearly 300 times as much carbon dioxide inside of a woodpecker cavity. And believe it or not, someone's out there measuring these things. (laughs) All I did was uncover what other people had done and then connect those dots again. But then as you start looking ahead, ramming sheep, you know, the sheep have these massive horn cores underneath their skull and they're attached to their respiratory tree, and they're attached to their horns. And inside those horn cords are huge, huge levels of CO2. Well, CO2 turns out to be the strongest determinant of how much fluid pressure and volume goes up into the brain space. So it suddenly clicked on me, Mm. who's an internist who looks into these types of physiological things. You know, I think that's what enabled me to suddenly realize, well, wait a minute, CO2 is not the the horrible, horrific thing that society has come to believe, it's critical for actual monitoring and maintaining of volume and pressure in the brain. So that's where it first clicked. And then I talked to one of the carbon dioxide gods of the world up in Toronto, and he pointed out that another mechanism uh, sounds like Quinkenstadt maneuver, because I had also looked into the neck structure of the woodpecker 
and there's this wild apparatus that actually compresses its jugular vein. And no one had ever been able to figure out why that woodpecker's tongue looks like this. It's called the omohyoid apparatus. And it actually starts on the top of its beak, goes up over the top of its skull, and then comes back around Whoa. the neck yeah. and compresses. It's a bizarre-looking animal when you actually take the skin off and look at it. And uh, ultimately, this compression is very similar to what had been studied way back in the early 1900s by Dr. Quinkenstadt. So it became clear to us that since that was a safe maneuver, that we might be able to actually backfill the cranial space with a tiny amount of excess blood, blood that occurs every time you cough or sneeze or every time you raise your arms or even if you just lie down, that's how much fluid and blood moves back up into the brain space. It's about three to four cc's of fluid. And gentle constriction um, enables this backfilling um, into the brain space, and then this thing called the compensatory reserve volume, it's a big word, it just means all the excess room is taken up, and it's like bubble wrap, and it literally prevents the brain from moving around, and just like you can walk away from a car accident when your airbags go off and, you know, your your seatbelts are firing, you can also walk away from a, a concussive type event where your head hits another football player or a blast wave comes across you in the same manner. The forces go through you instead of being absorbed by you. Wow. So, you know, animals, they've evolved these things. Are you, are you suggesting that we can actually train uh, athletes or uh, to create more flow into their brain? No, it's even, it's even cooler than that. Every single vertebrate on the planet Earth, all of us, Every animal with a spine has an omohyoid and digastric muscle. And the only known action of the omohyoid muscle is what I just described. Wow. Prior to our work, we knew of no action of the omohyoid muscle. Everybody thought it was just a vestige of evolution and that it was extinguishing. But wait a minute. If that was true, why does every single creature <laughs> still have one? And so it became clear to me that somebody was missing the true f- physiological function of this this muscular device, and all we decided, and, and, I, and what brought us and my work to, to the forefront, was we could facilitate this muscle. So we may have evolved away from, from needing it and using it uh, for the last thousand years. I, I, I guess nature didn't really think that we needed to bang into trees. Right. So we, we really haven't utilized it so much until football and wars started coming into place, and that's when, in fact, we kind of could use that same physiological mechanism. We, we started with rats, and we were able to actually put little tiny rat collars on these uh, <laughs> rats and, and then impart a, a study maneuver called the Marmorau Protocol. Dr. Bales was one of the two characters in the movie Concussion, and I actually saw him presenting to Congress um, on behalf of the NFL Players Association, what the, the dilemma of concussion and chronic traumatic encephalopathy was. And I jokingly said to the person next to me that, oh, you know, I think, I think Dr. Bales needs to meet me. And I woke <laughs> up the next morning and I kind of repeated that mantra, wait a minute, he needs to I shouldn't me. be joking. I think he really needs to meet me. And I ended up picking up the phone that morning, and you wouldn't believe the conversation trying to get through his secretary oh, when I, I told the chief of neurosurgery, uh, or told the secretary that the chief of neurosurgery had to come to the phone and talk to a guy about woodpeckers. <laughs> but she let me through on the phone, and 
Dr. Bales ultimately was, uh, you know, had the insight, just as he did with Bennett Amalu in the movie, he had the insight to call me a quack and call me crazy, but he said my concepts and ideas were plausible. He put me in the, in front of multiple different scientific minds in his department, and ultimately they uh, they did this massive study with these rats he told me the night before that uh, you know science has never been able to block even one percent of concussion. Helmets have never blocked one percent mm. of concussion. So he said, if we block two or three percent, you know he will open every door on the planet Earth for me. Well, we blocked eighty-three percent of concussive damage by wearing by the his study by wearing the collars, by wearing the the mice, the rats wearing the collars. That's right. Unbelievable. So he did, uh, he did open every door on the planet. He introduced me to a company called Q30 Labs who invested heavily into creating this device for human use. We went off and have done about 25 to 27 different safety studies. Uh, I then uh, hitched my wagon to a guy named uh, Dr. Gregory Meyer. He's the head of human research lab at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. This is one of the largest institutions in the world for studying humans. We ended up putting collars made for humans um, after five years of development and fail-safing the best we could onto humans and started studying them in Cincinnati, Ohio, at St. Xavier High School and Moeller High Schools. In the hockey field, we started and had a dramatic reduction in brain injury measured by tensor MRIs. And then the this landmark article was released in January of this last year, followed immediately thereafter by even a larger study in football, again, showing rather drastic and dramatic changes and alterations or improvements in the amount of damage that was seen. Lessons from the woodpecker. Dr. David Smith, let's take a break. We'll come back. I want to continue and find out uh, what the future looks like then with traumatic, traumatic brain injuries and some of this new technology, this uh, just a simple collar uh, changing possibly concussions overall. Stick with us, folks, helping you see the good in the world and uh, see the people making it happen. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Concussions, we talk about them on the show. Uh, the fear of our children playing Little League sports, soccer, t- a lot of concussions in soccer with uh, these kids all trying to, you know, push their heads toward the sky to head a ball into the goal. And then they bang heads. Concussion, football, concussion, lacrosse, concussion, uh, falling off your bike, Concussion. You name it, skiing, concussion. Everyone's wearing helmets, and yet it's not decreasing the amount of concussions we're having necessarily because it just doesn't work that way. Joining us is Dr. David Smith, who has uh, been learning from the woodpecker, from uh, bighorn sheep, also from bird predator birds, about how come all of these animals can pull all of these G's, banging heads, banging their head 8 million times as a woodpecker does, and not get a concussion? Well, apparently it's about, uh, I guess, Dr. Uh, Smith, it's about 
fluid management then, right? We These animals and birds tend to have more fluid protecting the brain than the average human, I guess. Well, they've learned to contain that fluid. And, and again, the, the, the cranium is not uh, half full, et cetera, right. but there's space and things can't actually expand and contract. There's pressure-sensitive membranes, if you will, that can basically fill up and, like bubble wrap, contain the brain space. And that's what these creatures have figured out how to modulate. And God gave us that same mechanism. It's just we've not learned to utilize it. Yeah. So it's, it's one of these things that even just a yawn, when you raise your arms up over your head, it actually compresses your jugular and digastric muscles so that if you fear this physiology in some way, for goodness sakes, don't ever yawn. Because it's, <laughs> it's happening all methods. the time. So then you invented a collar, you tested it on rats, and uh, those tests proved that you could stop about 83%, I think it was, of concussions. You've then now moved to uh, being a visiting research scientist at Cincinnati Children's Medical Center, I guess, and that's where you're doing more studies now on humans. Right. Um, Again, Greg Meyer and his group down at Cincinnati Children's has now moved into a larger football study, again, with Xavier and Moeller High School. But also, we have, as you mentioned, switched over to soccer. And believe it or not, uh, one of the highest levels of concussion rate are in young women's soccer uh, field. And so we've initiated a very huge study down uh, in the same region uh, on women's soccer. So that's that stay tuned that's that should hopefully the results of that should be coming up here in the next couple of months we're um, also on the Yale rugby team we've um, we've undergone multiple studies uh, per the FDA here in the United States to make sure that we don't cause an increase in bleeding if an animal or a human were to suffer a traumatic bleed inside their brain and I had predicted that there'd be an improvement, but the FDA was concerned that, you know, at least not be any worse right. than if the collar were not on. Well, we did these studies at um, North Shore uh, University with Dr. Bales, again, the gentleman in the movie Concussion. Dr. Bales' group found a 300% reduction in brain bleed when the oh. collar was on, using large 300-pound swine pigs that had a small impactor to force a bleed. So everything seems to be going along swimmingly. We uh, have made it through the Canadian, European, and and Australian FDA equivalent, but we're a little tougher here in the United States. And so, um, like I say, we're at 27 different safety and efficacy studies. We've probably got five major universities that have touched this project. I can't even count how many investigators, PhDs, and MDs that have actually been involved so far. Now, explain the caller. It's... um I guess all it, what does it do and how does it work? How does it actually, you know, keep? Does it open up a spa, that muscle in our in our body? What does it do? Yeah, you know, it it appears simplistic, but I assure you, there's over five million dollars worth of engineering <laughs> that has gone into this. Um, is this is what we're calling the Kerr collar, the Q collar, the Q collar. Yeah, after. After Dr. Quinkenshot, who again evolved this theory way back in 1918, um, it it basically serves to put mild compression, um, a very, very trivial amount. If you reach onto the back of your hand, turn your hand over and see one of those veins, if you reach down and just touch one of those veins until it collapses, that's the amount of pressure of the venous system of your hand. But 
from your jugular vein, it's one-sixth of that because there's a column of fluid under the jugular vein collapsing it already. There's a column of fluid on top of your hand making that be a pressure of about 15 to 20 millimeters of mercury. So the amount of pressure is, is astoundingly minimal, but you have to hit the jugular vein. So the collar is, is fashioned after that omohyoid apparatus of a woodpecker. It transects and comes across from right to left, and it dissects right directly across the same path of the omohyoid muscle and gently pushes that omohyoid muscle further into the jugular vein. Hmm. And again, it's built to do that already. If you ask any surgeon who's ever dissected that part of the neck, this omohyoid muscle is attached to your jugular. It's not close. It's attached to it. Well, God nature wouldn't do that if it was somehow harmful. Right. And and again, it all, all we had to do was just apply a little extra pressure. And I'm telling you, it's well tolerated. All of these oh. kids initially put the collar on and they go, wow, I don't know. And then they take off, run across the field and have forgotten it the rest of the day. Uh-huh. I mean, it's certainly more comfortable than putting in devices in your mouth or putting a helmet on oh, yeah. or shoulder pads or all of those things are incredibly, incredibly obtrusive compared to this minimal amount of pressure it, in and around the neck. And again, I, I looked- it's open in the front. So it doesn't it doesn't constrict your swallowing right. or talking or anything. It's it basically I just looked it up. It looks like a headband that women wear in their hair, and it's just around the neck. And it, uh, but I mean, really, it, it's nothing. It's almost like one of those earbud thing uh, collars that you wear to hold your earbuds. It's it's non intrusive. It really is, and it honestly, it would be easier to get that collar for my child than to go fit a mouth guard. I mean, it's oh, absolutely. just put the, and except that it it is fit exactly yeah. to your neck size. I mean, the one downfall, if you want to call it that, is is you're not going to be able to just pull any collar or any right. headband uh, and slap it around your neck. It is very precisely sized, and inside of it is this massively cool memory metal that no matter how many times you open it and close it, it always comes back to the same exact amount of compression. Could it be? I guess. It. I guess we're finding out, though, Doctor Smith, that it's it could be this simple. I mean, we you could cure something. I, the whole I was thinking, man, the NFL is ruined because we're not going to have our kids play football if they're going to keep getting concussions. And but now all of a sudden, it's a collar, and and basically well, mimicking. You, I was fear- woodpeckers. Yeah, I was fearful of the same thing. But uh, last year, my. Uh, youngest son was a senior in high school and wanted to switch from soccer over to football. I was actually okay with it so long as he wore the collar. Mm-hmm. And he just did great. And, of course, he knows the science and would never walk on the field without it. So it it really is, quote-unquote, that simple, but that that's what makes it kind of elegant. And, again, yeah. I didn't invent anything, Matt. I just identified how God and nature did it and duplicated it. How many more solutions are there out there by just paying attention like you did, Dr. Smith? I mean, other problems, well, cancers, remember, other Velcro issues. Velcro was invented. Yeah. yeah. Velcro came from a little nettle, a little thing that a burr, mm-hmm. as the inventor was walking across the field, and he couldn't get it out of his sock. And the next thing you know, we have a, a you know, gangbuster Velcro. So it's called biomimetics. I am somewhat of an inventor in many other realms, but I always look to see how God and nature did it first. 
uh, they've had billions of years to get it right. Right. Well, and it's interesting because you can tell some of the theories that have been used is, you know, just softening the helmet, adding more cushioning to helmets, all of this technology for the helmet. And yet it it was really more about the the venous structure in the neck being able to, to keep the fluids in the brain. Well, right. I mean, Greg Meyer puts it very nicely. He says, well, wait a minute, you already have a helmet. It's called a skull. Right. Why are you putting a helmet on top of a helmet? Why would you think that somehow is going to alter the fluid dynamics differently? So it, it histori- I'm not knocking helmets. I, right. they, they're very necessary, and they do what they're intended and engineered to do, but they do not alter the sloshing of the fluids within the brain. So their, their likelihood of being able to make any appreciable you know, dent in this problem, it's, it's very small. Does, where do you see this going in the future, and, and how long do you think it'll be before you can pass all of the, uh, the U.S. standards enough to, to make this just totally mainstream? Well, interestingly enough, I was sitting in my home uh, reading an article about a, a, a number of football players in the Canadian Football League having deafening effects to the ear. And right then, a woodpecker started smacking its head against the tree, uh, the tree next to my window. And I just looked over at the woodpecker and I said, well, you, you must be deaf. Because if these football players in one right. season have changes in their hearing, well, the woodpecker's got to be deaf. So it turns out, Googled it right there on the spot. It turns out that woodpeckers have some of the highest hearing of all creatures. They actually figure out where their food is underneath the bark by listening for the bee larvae burrowing under the bark. So obviously there was a mechanism that God put in there also. And why build two fascinating mechanisms? I immediately assumed that there must be a connection between the intracranial space and the inner ear. And it turns out there's three of them. So we set out to see whether or not my theory that we might have a device to protect hearing is accurate. So back up to Dr. Bale's lab, uh, a colonel, uh, Dr. Brian Sindelar, um, actually started doing these studies, and they put blast waves into rats again and started to measure the actual number of hair cells inside the damaged ears of these little rats. And there was a 94% protection to hmm. the ears of these little animals just oh my heavens. by putting little rat collars on. <laughs> so we're moving right into the hearing space now. We really truly believe that this will also dramatically reduce hearing damage as well. Boy. So there's, I mean, again, another lesson from nature. Just pay attention. Yeah, absolutely. And right. thank, thank well, heavens remember, for woodpeckers. Well, think about it. Why do bats actually hang upside down inside a bat case? Oh, to keep why didn't fluids in their ask, head. Why do they? They actually do. Inside those bat caves, especially some of the Mexican bat caves, there are up to 2 million bats hanging from the ceilings inside those caves. And they screech in order to echolocate at sometimes 120 to 150 decibels of sound. And then you multiply that by 200 million bats. Wow. How do they protect their own ears? Right. Well, hanging that, upside down. Now I think we know. That is... fill up that space. The energy cannot be absorbed. It goes right through them. Love it. Basic. Yeah, I mean, it, again, cool. it, it's really cool. Well, we appreciate your insight. And, uh, man, thank you. The, the idea that uh, we can all play football again, that's pretty cool. You saved my I kids' so. lives, David. David Smith is his name. Again, you're going to – what's the best way to reach you, David? 
Well, I'm on staff uh, on sort of an honorary position down at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. That's okay. probably the best way to reach out to us. Um, and Dr. Greg Meyer has um, been basically fielding most of the questions. He's the, the great science mind and trying to prove or disprove some of the aspects of this technology. Great stuff. Dr. David Smith, thank you so much. All right. Helping you see the good in the world. There it is. The lessons from the woodpecker might be helping us with our brain concussions, but also hearing. Just just need to wear a collar. Get some more fluid up in the brain. Keep it up there. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. What happens when you allow yourself to be influenced by others? A, a breakthrough. Dr. David Smith creates a, a breakthrough, and his uh, his team there, Dr. Greg Meyer as well, they, they're creating a breakthrough by simply paying attention to nature, to a a woodpecker, for heaven's sakes. And by allowing yourself to be influenced and to learn and to ask, just ask the basic question, how does a woodpecker do it? And how does, uh, you know, a mountain goat or a, a ram bang heads and not have concussions? And isn't it crazy? God, nature has already created the answer if we can just allow nature to play its course. How much are we missing in our own lives, in our own world? Because we're not open to asking these questions. We, we are so stuck in our way of thinking. The way to protect the brain is you wear a helmet. Hello? Sure, that's one way. There's other ways. Apparently now you can wear a, a collar that keeps fluid up in your brain. And with more fluid, the energy can dissipate through the brain instead of concussing and, and, and uh, bouncing the brain around. Plus, it's going to impact hearing. Why do bats hang upside down? I don't know. The good doctor, though, is paying attention. Do you pay attention to the people in your life? Do you pay attention to the things you don't understand? Or do you just sit and continue to think the exact same way you always think? Maybe there's a lesson here. In order, to be influ- or in order to influence people and to create real change in the world, you have to be open to being influenced. And as we just learned from some researchers, man, Mother Nature can influence you. Even the woodpecker can influence us. So keep open. Remain open. Remember, you can't know everything. And sometimes when you're confidently sure you do, that's the problem. It keeps us from truly learning. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the program. We'll be back next hour. More information, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Or middle of the morning for many of you. 
Which is good news. You're, you're making it happen. You are already halfway through your morning. <laughs> Life is good. Man, if we got a great uh, program for you today, we will be talking with a, a, uh, an expert on parenting. And should you, as a parent, ask your children to apologize? You know, the old, you need to apologize to that kid. You need to, and kind of forcing the I'm sorry hand. Is that a healthy tool? And, well, of course it is, right, Matt? But what, at what age is a child even, you know, understanding what's going on? And by forcing the hand of the apology, does it do anything to your child? Does it help them understand apologizing better? Does it make them actually have an aversion to apologizing? We'll be talking about the question, should parents ask their children to apologize? We'll get to that. Uh, I mean, it's it's funny. We we force our politicians to apologize when they blow it sometimes. We, we force people to, you know, adults to do it. You need to apologize. I'm not talking to you until you apologize. I'm sorry. Man, I'm sorry. There you go. Well, that wasn't sincere. Talking apologies today, folks, and uh, we've also got some crazy headlines. You won't believe this one. A guy trying to break into prison. (laughs) Break in. Break in. Okay. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people try to break out of prison. In fact, there's been movies made about breakout TV shows. No. This guy wants to – he wants in. It's the second story of a guy trying to break into prison. Crazy. What's happening? We'll talk about all of that. Plus – uh, you hear a lot about gun control. You hear a lot about uh, people that want to, you know, disarm America. But what about badgers? You ever had somebody pull a badger on you? It happened in a McDonald's. Guy brought in a badger. <laughs> Stick with us. We got those headlines coming up. But first, let's get to the national headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Sadie, what's up? The Islamic State's news outlet reported Tuesday that an official ISIS spokesman has been killed in Syria, where he was inspecting military operations. The spokesman was considered the terrorist group's second-in-command, encouraged attacks against Westerners, and was believed to be in charge of ISIS's External Operations Division, which managed recruitment and organized attacks. After waffling about whether he would actually run for Senate in Florida again after his unsuccessful presidential bid, Marco Rubio won the Republican Republican. Republican primary on Tuesday night. He easily defeated his opponent, who marketed himself as a kind of mini Donald Trump. President Obama on Tuesday announced the commuting of 111 more sentences for convicts in the second round of clemency grants this month. During August 2016 alone, Obama has shortened the sentences of 325 individuals. And finally... Yeah. In your interesting news. What? Hazmat teams were called to a New York State building for an air contamination situation that Mm. turned out to be the result of microwaving a hot chili pepper. Whoa. Yeah. Toxic. Weird, right? Residents of a building in Rochester summoned emergency responders around 1020 a.m. Monday, reporting of an odor that was causing some people to experience trouble breathing. Firefighters and police responded to the building and they found out someone had microwaved a hot pepper in the microwave. Um, but it causes something similar to airborne pepper spray. That's why people were Oh, it's like you were everyone dying. was maced. Yeah. Holy cow. So the hazmat had to come out and fix that. Yep. Man, Sadie. We don't have that problem here. We just have people doing popcorn 
And then there's the occasional everybody, you know, every third Thursday, somebody brings in fish. Oh, or when they take frozen vegetables and microwave them, it just has sort of a garbage smell that yeah. just goes throughout the building. What are you people doing? <laughs> Eat that at home. I heard that somebody left a milk carton in the fridge and it exploded and it got really smelly. Really? Yeah. In our fridge? Yeah. They didn't microwave it, but. I love microwaving milk bottles. I did it once where I uh, was cooking up some uh, like chicken and rice and that kind of stuff, and I wanted it really hot, so I bought a bunch of jalapenos and ser- serrano peppers. Yeah. And I chopped them all up, and I tossed them in the pan, and we had to leave the apartment because we were crying because we just we pepper sprayed right. ourselves. <laughs> did you learn your lesson? No, because when you then you go eat it, and you... Uh, basically flushed your entire system mm-hmm. of the pepper spray. You know, you can just buy that in a can. I know, but man, that was hot and really <laughs> not an enjoyable meal. Anybody want some pepper spray while they're eating their chicken and rice? We decided to back off on the heat there next That's time. Smart. Yeah. I'm not into heat. I like my food really bland. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. You never got to the pizza story. Oh, the pizza story. The pizza diet. We've got to talk about a pizza diet if it exists and if it's real pizza. So it's for those of you looking to lose a bit of timber, this may be the best news for you this week. Okay. It says, it turns out pizza can help you actually lose weight, even the deep pan variety, cheese mm. stuffed crust, double pepperoni variety. What? Yeah. Before we make this into our daily diet plan, the bad news is that it's very much when done in moderation. Yeah, I know. Oh, come on! According to Men's Health, a recent study showed that after two weeks of dieting, people who were allowed one day of indulgence or a cheat day per week were more likely to stick to their diets in the long run. The beauty of the cheat day is that you're allowed to eat whatever you fancy, so it's not just pizza that could be boosting your chances of losing weight. And this is from a, uh, what, the study's author says the key to the plan... And the key is to plan ahead and designate a specific day for your rule breaking. That's because it uh, giving you uh, a spur of the moment donut can make you feel like you blew your diet, right. and it might as well you uh, you'll think like I'll just abandon this completely. But if yeah. you plan for it, it's part of the program. Right? Go nuts. That's that. Did you say donuts? Donuts, go nuts, whichever. Did you say cronuts? Says, of course, this doesn't mean a cheat day means we can all run riot and have seven pizzas for breakfast on that one day. Oh. Right, but you can kind of relax. What if some you of plan the... on having seven pizzas that one day? Well, then you're not on a diet. So well, it's really not the pizza diet. I mean, this if it's a cheat day, this article could have been about anything. Yeah, you could it's the be the cronut diet. Yeah, <gasps> don't say that. I today have been asked by my wife to go pick up three dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. Okay, for a party she's having tonight. Hmm. Be careful. Make sure you get the right ones. I know. Remember that story? I don't want to get. We've had some stories lately. I don't want to be stabbed mm-hmm. with a meat fork. So I'm thinking I, I, I might get four dozen. Hmm. One dozen for the family, mm-hmm. in air quotes. <laughs> the family. Or whatever's left of the do- donuts before I get home. Are you in the mob or something? Uh-huh. Why does that have to be in quotes? In the family. Or, and then the three, but I'm wondering if I know I'm going to go do this and I know I'm going to eat a few of those donuts, Mm. is that breaking my diet that I'm not on? Did you plan on it? I just did. Well. And it's my cheat day. Now, is it a cheat meal? Because I've been on some plans where they have a cheat meal. So you pick, say, dinner on Friday. Okay. That's it. Oh, yeah. Everything else is on your plan. 
that you have one meal you can go off the rails. This is why diets don't work. And then you don't overeat. You eat portions, right? You don't go crazy. You have a hamburger, not four. I agree. So is it really anything more than just a diet? No. Yeah. You're just trying to... You're trying to trick yourself to stay on the diet. You're just trying to is. call it something else. Yeah. But, I mean, there is some truth to the idea that if you're on some strict diet, it's not necessarily fun. And you give your day, you give yourself a day to kind of loosen things up and relax a little bit. Yeah. You'll still you have a better chance of succeeding. You know, another way to uh, lose weight, mm. if you're into that, is carry a dead badger everywhere you go. Okay. That's how I've kept the pounds off. I've noticed that. Got my dead they, badger. Uh, Got some roadkill over here. There was a man that walked into a McDonald's carrying a dead badger, you know. And the problem is you're not just carrying the dead badger for yourself, even though you are, but everyone around you has to deal with the dead badger. The smell or yeah. just the look? Well, they just get upset like you're carrying a dead animal. Yeah. You I probably can can't be in this store. Yeah, I can see. There's a little public health issue going on. What? Just, just my badger friend. So this guy in Sweden last week walked into um, walked into a McDonald's with a badger under his arm. The staff reacted quickly and asked him to leave. According to the McDonald's press spokesperson, police uh, were called after the man began hitting cars parked outside with the badger. <laughs> He was literally badgering people. (laughs) We were waiting for food at the drive-in, one person said, when we saw him swinging a dead badger. That's funny. A witness named only as Henrik, this was in Sweden, by the way, Mm. told the newspaper, he said the man then threw the badger at his car. (laughs) What a jerk. So the employees asked him to leave. Yeah. Badgers? We don't need no stinking badgers. Yeah. We don't need no stinking badgers. Wow. uh, So guess what? At his trial, he got in trouble again, badgering the witness. There you go. Just kept doing it. There's there's the theme here. That's such a good line. And when he was arrested, he asked for the officer's badger number. (laughs) Bit of a stretch. Um, Bit of a stretch. But I I would eat less if I had a a dead badger. Absolutely. It doesn't. I didn't even think that guy ate. Or I would probably question what McDonald's was putting in their their food. If, oh, you don't want to do that. McDonald's uh, is nothing but good. What, what if that guy was some sort of? What if it looked like he was making some sort of delivery? Oh, uh, you guys need your badger today. <laughs> got your order of badger meat. What Let's... are you talking about? <laughs> no, uh, we got more badger. If you, we, I found a badger on the road. <laughs> Remember a couple of years ago, the whole pink slime thing. Yeah, we're questioning like what chemicals are going into yeah, these hamburgers. But that's not... Now I know they've adjusted and they, no, you know, that's whatever. All good now. But, but it's just you know it's, it's always out there. Heaven. Bit of heaven. Hey, did uh, did you know things are weird? Because this is the second time we've talked about a guy trying to break into prison. Wow, not the badger guy, right? But that would that'd be funny too. <laughs> He's got a badger trying to get into prison. <laughs> Hey, sir, I'm going to need all your valuables. It really just sounds like a YouTube yeah. video where he has a badger and he's trying to see, hey, let's see if I can get in here today. You know. <laughs> so this guy um, in San Bernardino, California, was caught climbing the fence to get into the jail. Hmm. And uh, the sheriff's officials say 28-year-old Shane James McDonald wasn't a prisoner at the, at the detention center. 
So he wasn't a prisoner, right. but he's trying to get in. And it doesn't say why he was trying to get in? No. It's not clear. Wait a minute. Why. This sounds familiar. What do you mean? Oh, my gosh. I was on um, – was it iTunes trailers last night? Oh, yeah? There's, <laughs> there is a trailer about – they've already – Oh. They've already got the movie rights for this. They've made a trailer. So maybe this is a stunt. I don't know. A trailer for a movie about breaking into a prison? What's it called? Yeah, hold on a second. It's called It's called Breaking. Really? Yeah. Hold on, let me play it. Jane McDonald was an upstanding law-abiding citizen with a 757 credit score, an affinity for opera and no history of violence. Then one day, something changed all that forever. He had never broken a rule in his life. Now he's breaking into prison. But in order to break into the most secure prison in the world, he'll have to remember that a successful break-in depends on three things. Knowing the layout, understanding the routine, and help from outside or in. Put your hands in the air now! Showtime. Since he doesn't own a gun, he'll have to rely on his brains. You don't look that smart. And brawn. I need a diversion. Okay. <laughs> you hit like a vegetarian. That was good. What's he up to? If you thought breaking out was hard, try breaking in. Break in. The guy who broke into prison. Wow. That looks good. I'm glad that usually movie trailers show way too much. And even in the trailer, they're not sure why he's breaking in. So they didn't give that away. It's kind of weird. It just seems like prison would be fairly easy to get into. The guy that broke into prison. That's, that's a good tagline. That's a great like that. movie. That looks fantastic. Don't you just need to commit a felony and be convicted? And well, then they give that. You, then, but, you, then you're in. But if you break into prison, you can. that's probably a felony. Well, there you have it. And then you're already there, so you're actually saving the tax dollar money. But they're still going to then probably just take you to jail. But you're at the jail. Well, then you're at the prison. They could just put you right in a cell and you're done. I think he's trying to do it undetected. Break in undetected. Why? Well, you have to go see the movie to find out. See, they're teasing you. Mm. That's like a tease. That's a teaser. (laughs) Well, it looks good. I don't care what it is. And I think it's fantastic. And that must have just been a publicity stunt in San Bernardino. Just trying to get some more attention to the trailer. And McDonald's is the sponsor. Breaking in. Badgers Gone Wild. That'll be the next trailer. Badgers, dead badgers on the hunt. Ooh. Yeah. Well, I'm not the guy that makes up trailers. So uh, what do you think? I, I'm going to that for sure Friday. Is it, It's already out in theaters, huh? Okay. Just writing that down. Put that in my planner. Okay. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, we're talking parenting skills Should parents ask their children to apologize? Do you demand an I'm sorry from your kids? Do you apologize to other parents? We'll be talking apologies up next. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. That's the music I play when uh, I need to apologize. Just play it for my whole family. They're all sitting there. <laughs> Dad's mean. I'm sorry. Your child is playing with another child while you watch from across the playground. Suddenly your child lashes out and hits their friend. What do you do? Do you demand an I'm sorry from your child? Do you apologize to the other parents? What is the best thing to do if you want to teach your children about the importance of apologies? Here to discuss it is uh, Dr. Craig Smith, who uh, whose research focuses on children's social cognitive development and their links to social behavior. He is currently the director of the Living Lab Project at the University of Michigan. Dr. Craig Smith, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much. It's nice to be here. Talk to us about um, apologies. It, it Again, it just seems like smart business that when we hurt somebody, we we apologize. Um, but what's the research telling us about apologies? Yeah, yeah good question. So, um, you know, one of the things that we know from older studies with adults is that apologies can make a difference. They can, you know, lead people to feel like uh, happier or better after a transgression has taken place, feel closer in a relationship that's been harmed by some kind of, um, you know, rift. Um, but one of the things we just didn't know much about was what apologies meant to kids. And at the same time, we, you know, we see, like you mentioned, kids doing things all the time that, um, as they're little, that they, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally upset other people and parents then prompting apologies. And, you know, I was curious about what these um, apologies end up meaning to kids. And so we just started by asking kids themselves, like, you know, about situations where they saw someone get upset and either didn't get an apology or did get an apology afterwards. And it was really clear from some of the early studies that that even the youngest kids we we were interviewing, like four years of age, you know, preschoolers, understood some of the basic things yeah. that you know, go along with the apology that it's it can it's supposed to convey that you feel bad about what you've done. They you know they saw the apologizers as feeling guilty, um, so they understood that, and they also understood that if you get an apology, um, at least the way it's supposed to work, they understood that you you know would feel better afterwards. So um, we had this sense that even little kids um, had a grasp of some of the basic emotional functions of an apology, which is to express remorse and to make somebody else feel better. Um, you know, and then, of course, you bring up the great question of um, how does it work in real life? Like, does that really happen for kids and, and what do parents do and all these complicated questions about what happens when you make or ask yeah. a kid to apologize? When you compel. To, right. Because <laughs> um, I think we've all seen that before. Um, so true. You will apologize now. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that actually got me interested in this whole thing is, you know, having my own kids when they were younger, I was on the playground, just like you mentioned, and saw a parent tell their kid, like, you're going to apologize right now or we're leaving the playground. And the kid, like, spits out this angry apology, and then the parent seemed satisfied and everyone went about their business. And it was sort of this horrifying huh? thing. Yeah. Like, what are you teaching your kid? Like, what does an apology mean to kids? And what does this particular apology convey? So it raises a lot of really important questions. And, and apologies, this is a... This is kind of a social interaction dynamic, right? I mean, we, apologizing is, it seems like culturally it would be some form of reconciliation needs to be made globally, culturally, in every culture, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, it's a great, great thing you bring up because in, in a lot of ways, even though like the exact details might differ and the way that apologies are exchanged, there's a lot of similarities across really diverse cultures about um, the importance of apology. Um, you know, even some people who study the role of apology in places like Japan, for example, find that um, you can even uh, see how apologies have play an important role in their justice system where apologies are taken into account um, when at every step of the way, like whether deciding whether to prosecute somebody, deciding about whether to punish somebody. So, I mean, apologies carry a lot of weight and, yeah. you know, that can even differ across cultures how much weight. But I think, you know, one of the things I always think about is even for me, you know, times when I've really wanted an apology or times when it's been hard for me to say I'm sorry. And I, and I think it, it conveys how important apologies can feel to us sometimes. And other times when I've heard apologies and had them be completely unsatisfying. And I think that again conveys like the, the depth uh, the apologies can sort of go. And, and when they fail to reach that depth, um, they can also be a very uh, telling situation about how important they are to us. Um, so true. Yeah, so I think, um, so one of the things that we, you know, we, we did to pursue this stuff beyond finding that kids, you know, understand some of the basics about apologies. We, we try to think about all the different functions apologies serve. So like, you know, they could be looked at as emotional functions, like they express that I feel bad and I want you to feel better. But um, they can also sort of signal things. So the kids understand, for example, that someone who apologizes might be uh, nicer uh, than somebody who doesn't. And kids also seem to grasp that. Um, even from a young age, kids view, you know, if they given a bunch of situations in an experiment and they see some people who transgress and apologize and others who don't, they seem to view the, the transgressors who apologize as kinder or nicer people. And I think this has an important implication. I mean, we haven't tested all of it yet, but I mean, if you think about, you know, if I think about my own kid doing something bad and then not apologizing, how do other people see them? Mm. Um, and one of the things that's clear from this research is even little kids see them as not, not as nice as maybe someone who says, I'm sorry. And does that have uh, social repercussions for kids, right? Would, do we want our kids to be viewed as uh, more negatively or more positively? And I think we'd all probably answer that more positively, right? Right. And does that then create, maybe that's some of the social pressure that's also created on parents to get right. their kid to apologize. Yeah, I think that's part of it is one of the things we did in our most recent study where we were asking parents about, you know, prompting apologies is, you know, we asked them a bunch of reasons about why they do it, but we also asked them situations in which we might do it. And one of the funny things we did was we compared, you know, parents themselves being sort of upset by their kids versus seeing their kids upset other people. And we asked them how likely you'd be to prompt an apology. And parents were more likely to say that they'd prompt an apology when their kids upset somebody else as opposed to when they upset the parents themselves. Hmm. I think it goes to right to what you said is there partly parents are trying to teach their kids about apologies, but also I think parents are trying to help their kids manage the, you know, their social relationships with other people. Um, they want their kids to be socially successful and knowing how to make amends, um, using even the kinds of scripts we have when we apologize, knowing how to do that, I think in the eyes of parents is a important because they want their kids to be viewed as likable and kind people, you know? Yeah. Is there a, um, is there some complex or something for, for people that don't apologize well or haven't yeah. learned to? What, what, would, what would make them not just conform and yeah, apologize? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I, again, I think like part of 
it's funny. This is a, a funny thing that I encountered once when I was reading about apologies. Is what one person I was, who was theorizing about the importance of apologies was writing about how sometimes when we when we get an apology, we then sort of have this idea that well, maybe this person shouldn't be punished or they, they don't deserve as much punishment. They've clearly admitted they're wrong. They've apologized, and they they were writing about how in some ways an apology can be viewed as like sort of a self punishment. You're you're going through the process of admitting you did something wrong, and that can be painful to the person who did the wrong thing, right? Right. Um, and and I think that that can be some of the, when you're asking that question, it can be almost one of the things that gets in the way, is that there's some kind of emotional discomfort in actually taking that step of admitting that you did something bad and that mm. you're sorry about it. Um, I, don't, I don't think it feels comfortable for a lot of us when we're faced with having to do that, right? Yeah. Does have you ever seen a tie of uh, your ability to handle that discomfort and your sense of attachment? How safe you feel in the relationship? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think. Um, well, I, that's not one. I, I, I almost have to look that one up, say, Craig. Yeah, right. It's not <laughs> one I've, I've studied personally. Yeah. It's a great one. There are people who study this in adulthood. I've looked at apologies in close relationships, and they do find. Uh, that they matter a great deal, but I don't know about like the the level of comfort people feel. I, I would I would imagine they would feel more comfortable opening up with someone you'd be closer to, but I don't know. It's a great yeah. question. But the one thing I think um, that is interesting is that people have written a lot about sort of what goes along with, and this is another thing I've studied with kids too, is what goes along with a real effective apology, right? And I think that gets a little bit at what you're asking as yeah. well. So what's what's hard about Apologizing. Well, it's not that hard to just say, "Oh, sorry." Yeah. Right. I mean, and we see too much of that. Um, I think what's hard is actually giving a genuine apology, and some of the components of that are, you know, expressing remorse, admitting what you did, um, talking about it, making a promise of some kind or another that it won't happen again, uh-huh. potentially even going beyond words in some cases where the breach was really serious and making amends in another way. Um, and I think that that's where. Um, it gets difficult for people, and that's uh, and those are some of the components I think of a more genuine apology. And we found, you know, when we ask kids about apologies that seem less genuine, that they're sensitive to some of the markers of a non-genuine apology, and they view them less charitably. You know, so I think even again at, at a young age, and I think this has implications for parents. Even at a young age, kids are sensitive to what at least some of the markers of a non-genuine apology, and they don't think of those apologies as being as useful or even welcome. Huh. And then and then we we guess we can talk about what that does when they sit, when they interpret that it wasn't a genuine apology how that impacts the child. Let's come back and get to that. We're speaking again with Dr. Craig Smith. He is um from working at the University of Michigan in the Living Lab project there and uh, the Living Lab is a research education model that brings development research into the community settings and uh, is, is teaching us today about the power and importance of apologies. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion in just a couple of minutes. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are speaking um, about apologies and parents. How much 
pressure should we put on our children to apologize? And what really are the lessons that we should be teaching our kids about apologies? Joining us is Dr. Craig Smith. He is currently the director of the Living Lab Project at the University of Michigan, and his research focuses on children's social cognitive development and links to social behavior. Dr. Craig Smith, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Love uh, this information about apologies. You wrote a wonderful article in The Conversation about Mm -hmm. parents uh, asking their children for apologies. I guess it's – there's something um, that's, I guess, redeeming – Apologies are important. They're necessary so necessary uh, tools, I guess, of our socialization. But they also have a, a side where they could be misinterpreted as not genuine or yeah. interpreted correctly as not genuine. What's the impact of a non-genuine apology on our children? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the ways that um, we played around with this with kids, like, you know, there's so many ways that an apology could be looked at as non-genuine, I mean, and, and some of that might be hard to pick up on for little kids, you know, like just the, the facial expression that goes along with it that we might be more sensitive to as an adult. But one thing, you know, that like we were talking about that we often see is a parent just saying, say you're sorry. <laughs> and and we wonder, like, does even that convey, you know, the kid who gets that prompted apology, does that convey to them that the, the, the apologizer didn't really mean it because they got told to say it, right? Right. Um, and does that have some kind of negative impact? And so we were asking kids about that in one of our studies. And and we found that little kids actually don't view prompted apologies that negatively. Like if, if you know, my kid is tearing open a present and uh, they forget to say thank you because they're so excited and they're little. And I say, oh, say thank you. And they say, thanks. You know, that's often, I think, something we're accepting of. You know, we view yeah. that as the kid forgot and they're now expressing genuine thanks. And that's almost like how little kids viewed prompted apologies where they said, you know, person probably still feels bad and the person who got the apology might feel better. But we also played around with this thing that we often see parents do where they push their kid to say, you know, say, I'm sorry. And the kid resists a little and then says it. Um, And that's where kids really saw that um, being different. Kids viewed um, these apologies that were prompted, but came with a little bit of resistance or fussiness as um, less genuine. And they also, importantly, didn't see the victim who got the apologies feeling any better afterwards. and so I think that this is really important for parents to think about, because we, in our study with parents, we found that a lot of parents do prompt apologies from their kids. But I think the idea is, like, when do you do it and why do you do it? And, and first of all, when, I mean, I think intuitively we could all may imagine that if your kid's already upset or seeming angry, they're probably not going to deliver a genuine apology mm-hmm. if you ask them to do so. So maybe waiting, uh, maybe letting them cool down, talking to them about what happened, and, and maybe even finding another way for them to make amends besides just saying the words. Um, there's plenty of other research that shows that kids can, you know, be made to feel better, not even with an apology, but even having somebody make amends by helping rebuild a, you know, a, a tower that got knocked over. If, you know, somebody kicked your block tower over and then helps you rebuild it, that can help you feel better, too. You don't need the apology. Um, so I think that's one thing. It's like, when do we ask our kids to say, I'm sorry? And But the other thing is, you know, um, why and parents often talked about um, wanting to teach their kids lessons about how to help other people feel better and uh, help them reflect on some of the moral implications of you know what they've done if they've hurt somebody else and apology prompting can help with that but again if you're doing it if you're trying to teach those lessons just picking your moments is important 
It's so true. And I, I guess there's the – you don't want to taint apologies for the rest of your child's yeah. life. I think that's a great point. I mean, like if – and I think one of the things we did find um, is that, um, you know, this this real important thing, parents were, you know, focused on wanting their kids to understand how to help other people feel better and understand moral situations. So if that's the motivation um, – you know, you you might imagine like really feeling urgent about that, but I think parents need to realize that there's plenty of these situations that pop up in life, and there's no need to like have any one situation be rushed. Um, like again, like because it's not going to help the kid who's been upset feel better if your kid delivers a non-genuine fussy apology. So you're not really doing anything good for the victim, and and at the same time. You're probably not conveying the things you want to convey about apology to your own kid when you're pushing it that way. Um, so I, I agree. Yeah, you, so you don't true. want to taint that, taint that for kids as they get older. You want that. You want to teach skills about how to, I think, deliver a genuine apology that comes along with, you know, an acknowledgement of what was done and you know, a, an assurance that you know I'll try to be more careful in the future and I'm sorry and and even maybe again, like I said, if it's a more serious thing, making of amends. Does does it uh, do you see anything in the research about maybe a, some parents that are kind of right on top of the apology, pushing it very quickly to make it happen versus those that are maybe yeah. more permissive? What does that yeah, do to great, the child long term? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are, of course, like a wide range of even in any particular culture, the ways that parents um, approach parenting. Um, and one of the ways that it's been studied a lot is just the level of um, warmth and also level of demandingness or firmness. Um, so there's some parents that are super warm and fuzzy with their kids, which is great, um, but they're also sort of um, less demanding and they don't expect mature behavior from their kids. Um, these are parents we call permissive parents, and they tended to be less likely than other parents to prompt apologies. Um, and, you know, I, there's no sense in, from our research of what that means for kids down the road. But there are other studies that just look at these parenting dimensions and find that kids with overly permissive parents tend to ha- be more likely to have certain behavior problems down the road. They mm-hmm. tend to be less able to regulate their behavior in mature ways. And of course, there's the flip side. There are parents that are not very warm and incredibly demanding and firm. And those kids also tend to be more likely to have behavior problems down the road. And it doesn't mean all the kids do, but it's just on average. And then there's these parents that are combining warmth and, and responsivity with firmness and, and expectations of mature behavior. And those kids tend, on average, to fare very well because um, they're getting both the sense that I'm cared for and uh, I'm adored and I'm also um, you know, in, a, in a situation where I'm expected to behave myself and um, look after other people as well. And those parents, of course, were some of the ones that were indicating that they did indeed consider apologies to be important for their kids. Hmm. It's it's interesting. There's so many styles and almost uh, it seems like it depends as a parent if you're coming at the apology out of fear, out of yeah. embarrassment or out of yeah. true, sincere, yeah. you know, remorse. It's a great point. I mean, I think, I don't know, as a parent, I, I can at least relate to it on a personal level, having my kid even make a mistake and upset somebody else. What in that moment am I worried about? Like, am I worried about, you know, my kid learning something important and making sure the other kid involved also feels better? Or am I worried about managing the impression of other people have me have of me as a parent? Like, you know, and I think, I think that we often struggle with that as parents, wanting to seem like good parents in the eyes of others. Um, and that's a hard thing. You know, it's not something that 
you can just dismiss easily. But I think in the moment, it's just good to be aware of it and realize, like, what's my priority? My priority is the kids right now and not necessarily, like, needing to make sure by pushing my kid to apologize when they're not ready that I seem like a good parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also important to remember, you might not seem like a good parent if you're doing that either. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all these things are tricky to balance in the moment. What in the end is the long-term impact on our children um, by teaching them kind of the genuine, sincere apology yeah. approach? What impact will it make on their lives 20 years from now, 30 years from now? That's a really cool question. And then like, this is the kind of thing that I think we'd love to be able to study and we just don't know right now. And of course, there's so many other things that go along with development that it might even be hard to isolate the apology piece of it. But I, I think, I think more generally, if you look across studies, like across studies with kids and, and all the way through studies of adults and apology, one thing you can see a threat of is that apologies do matter. Like kids are sensitive to the importance of them and adults are also reporting in some studies that, um, the, when they've had conflicts in relationships that apologies have helped. Um, so I think one of the things we see about apologies is they seem like these basic words. Um, I'm sorry. It can almost seem like this script that, you know, it's hard to imagine carries a lot of power, but if delivered in a genuine way and it, you know, with some of these other elements, like, you know, acknowledgement of what happened and what went wrong. Um, I think what we're teaching our kids is ways to effectively manage and mend, um, rifts and relationships and, um, and it starts mattering for kids early on, and it seems to matter for adults, too. So I think, you know, the better that we can teach how to, how to apologize in a genuine fashion, uh, the, the, the more we give kids sort of tools to manage the kind of things that pop up in relationships all throughout our lives. I mean, and when you think about what skills could be more important than long-term relationship-sustaining Absolutely. skills. Yeah. Because yeah. relationships Absolutely. are going to—you're going to struggle. You're going to offend people. You will hurt people in your relationships, but you all you need to recover. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And um, you know, I, I, one of the things that we haven't really studied yet too is just, you know, I think adults, adults, we often struggle to deliver those apologies in in effective ways. Um, there are books for adults. There's a great one called On Apology. I, it's a wonderful short read um, that I'd recommend and talks about all the elements of apologies and how they're tricky to deliver at times and. I think even just thinking about the fact that we often, without thinking of it, are modeling apologies for kids. They're watching us um, when we're interacting with others in our relationships. And so, yeah, uh, there's a lot of ways we teach kids about apologies indirectly as well. And, and as you note, it can be an incredibly important tool. And we often, as adults, even still struggle to use it effectively. Oh, yeah. And, and, and if we use it ineffectively, eventually some people won't trust it. Oh, yeah, dad's just saying that, but he never changes. Um, But also, we we don't model the right way to do it. So if you were going to teach us how to prompt our child to effectively apologize in a moment, I guess the first thing would be to check, is this the right moment to do this? And and, and then what? Yeah, so absolutely, is the kid sort of calm and ready to reflect on somebody else's perspective? And, you know, because part of a real apology is just being able to take the perspective of another person say, yeah. like, you know, they've been upset in some way. Um, and if they can do that, um, first of all, just making sure that it's not just words for the kid, that they're acknowledging that somebody else has been upset and making sure that they understand that an apology is a, one way that you can help that person feel better, letting them know that you saw what you saw, what you did was upsetting to the other person and you feel bad about it. I think those are the key elements. And then, you know, what we know from some studies is that if, 
if the transgression was really bad, like it was really bad, um, you might also find another way to help your child mm. not only say those words and say them in a genuine, heartfelt way, but to, to do something to make up for what was done. Like, I, you know, for example, if, you know, I would use this example in preschool, for example, if you went over and kicked someone's block tower down, like saying you're sorry and really meaning it might go some way towards making that person feel better, but getting down there and helping them clean up what happened also would probably be a huge thing in that situation as well. So I think, um, you know, those kind of things are great to pay attention to. And I don't think we need to like make it too complicated for kids, but it's sort of the idea of making sure that they understand how other people are feeling, like that they're reflecting on it, Mm. that um, that they're saying the words in a heartfelt way. um, And they're not just saying them because you made them say them, (laughs) those kind of things. Yeah, and even I guess asking questions, like really, like you said, it's taking the place of other. And if you can get your child to feel a little bit of what the other was feeling, yeah, then that's that's one of the most, I guess, humanizing and relationship enhancing skills we could own. It's really true, and and to be honest, like you know, I think there's so many words we could use. Like the word, the exact words, "I'm sorry," probably aren't the most important thing in there. Although we use those words a lot, and they do convey very quickly our meaning. But, you know, the idea that, like, we could even just say to someone, I'm sorry, you know, instead of saying, I'm sorry, you can say, I see that I upset you, or um, I feel bad about that. Um, How are you doing now? You know, these kind of things. That's sort of what we're trying to teach our kids is just to put themselves in somebody else's shoes and understand what happened and then to make some kind of statement about how you feel about that. And Yeah. That's powerful. Dr. Craig Smith, thank you so much for your insight on apologizing. Yeah, it was fun talking with you today. You too. We'll uh, have you back. Dr. Craig Smith again. You can find out more about him. Just Google Dr. Craig Smith and the Living Lab Project at the University of Michigan. Apologizing. We'll take a break, come back, do a little Coach's Corner, giving you more tools, more information to help you live healthier, happier relationships. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Jane McDonald was an upstanding, law-abiding citizen with a 757 credit score, an affinity for opera, and no history of violence. Then one day, something changed all that forever. He had never broken a rule in his life. Now he's breaking into prison. But in order to break into the most secure prison in the world, He'll have to remember that a successful break-in depends on three things. Knowing the layout, understanding the routine, and help from outside or in. Put your hands in the air now! Showtime. Since he doesn't own a gun, he'll have to rely on his brains. You don't look that smart. And brawn. I need a diversion. Okay. You're like a vegetarian. That was good. What's he up to? If you thought breaking out was hard, try breaking in. Break in. The guy who broke into prison. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, I'm going to see that break-in movie. Good trailers, good trailers. So here's the deal, parents. 
think about how much of our parenting is actually done in an effort to protect our own ego. Not even to protect our children, but just so that we don't look bad. And what are we telling our children when we're saying, you better apologize, that's embarrassing, you're humiliating me. It's, again, if we're going to try to create a long-term relationship and, and set our kids up for success, we need to figure out how to get ourselves out of the way. Um, I'll I'll never forget the my lesson Stephen Covey taught about our egos being part of our parenting, and we can't allow ourselves to to have our ego be the reason we are doing anything. My ego should not go up and be inflated because my child is the quarterback on a team. My ego should not be. Um, stroked simply because my daughter is uh, the student body president. It shouldn't – I shouldn't feel so much better about myself because my kids do what they're supposed to do and I shouldn't feel horrible about myself because my kids don't do what they should be doing. If my ego is connected to my children's success, we are setting ourselves up for a failure. Because then my children's choices, my child's agency is going to be um, really able to impact my sense of identity. Wouldn't it make more sense that instead of having my, my child's success build my identity, wouldn't it make more sense that I just have principles that make me feel more peaceful, more strong? Principles like apologizing. Principles like patience, principles like uh, choice, and principles like agency and the ability to show integrity and be loyal to people and to you know exercise character. What if my confidence came from those principles, not whether my child apologized on the playground or not? So think that through. Where is it that you get the ideas that you get in order to parent? And is it coming from your ego? And how much of your ego are we going to let impact? The dilemma you you will face, every one of us faces, is if my child, if my self-worth and self-esteem come from what my child is doing, then what happens when they're not doing what I want them to do? (laughs) Then do I lose my self-worth? But instead, if my self-worth and my identity as a parent comes from the fact that I'm teaching principles, I'm doing everything I can to teach the principles effectively – If they still choose not to do it, I still have the principles, right? I still know that I've been patient and doing everything I can. Um, It doesn't mean I won't be sad if they mess up, but it will mean that I have my principles. Think about it. Just all of us. Parenting 101, what are you basing your decisions on? I'd suggest principles while we're at it. We'll take a break. It's hour number two of the program. Stick with us, folks. Helping you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
Hey friends, welcome back to the program. Dr. Matt here, your life guide, walking you through life, giving you the information, the latest, the greatest tools. Uh, Some of it's even important, but it's more than you get anywhere else, for heaven's sakes. A lot of times you just get the news, but what does the news mean? What does it matter? And we give you news that a lot of uh, reporters wouldn't touch. Remember. Because they're afraid. Bovine news. Bovine news. I figured out why I thought bovine meant pig. Why's that? Because our last guest used the word swine. And so in my head, I'm thinking swine. Bove swine. Okay. That's Bo- probably why. They're, they're real close. Yeah. Interchangeable words there. Bovine, equine, swine, swine. Okay. I think you said it twice. Yeah, right. Is, uh, when, when are you going to get to that story? We can do it after Sadie gives is, us like the legit be, news. This is a big. This is going to be a big moment. It's really quick. There's two cow stories. Okay, you got to love a good cow story. So we will be talking uh, cows coming up. Also, what happens in a kid's brain when they hear mom's voice? Mm. I used to get the chills. I still get the chills. When <laughs> I get, when I get my entire given name. Yeah. I am 38. My mother says my entire <laughs> given name. It still puts a chill down my spine. Like, what did I do? It's not my fault. Mother? <laughs> I, I look at my brother and point at him. He know? made me do it. Yeah. We will be replaying a, an interview we did with Dr. Uh, Daniel Arthur Abrams about some of his research about what happens in your brain, the neuroscience behind mom's voice. Mm. Pretty interesting stuff. We'll get there as well, plus our good uh, buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show as they're taking it down to the first game in the BYU uh, football season. Such an exciting week. And we'll, of course, wrap up the show with a hero story. But first, let's get to Sadie Nelson and the headlines. Sadie, what's up? The National Weather Service has issued a hurricane warning for Hawaii's Big Island as Category 3 storm Madeline approaches. Earlier on Tuesday, the Central Pacific Hurricane Center predicted that it would pass dangerously close to the island on Wednesday. They initially reported that the storm had reached Category 4 intensity, but they expect its strength to diminish by today. A woman reportedly walked into the office of a Chicago congressman on Tuesday, drank from a bottle of hand sanitizer, poured the sanitizer all over herself, and set herself on fire. The woman, who has not been identified, was rushed to the hospital in serious condition, police say. Congressman U.S. Representative Danny Davis was not in his office when the incident took place, and it is not clear whether he had any connection to the woman. Chris Brown was arrested after a 14-hour standoff with police on suspicion of assault with a deadly weapon on Tuesday after a model accused him of pointing a gun at her head while they were arguing in his home. Brown denies the charges even as the police arrived on the scene at his home where he was holed up for most of the day. And finally... Yesterday, more than 20 competitors gathered at a pub in England to battle each other in Mm -hmm. a pool of gravy for the World Gravy Wrestling Championships. The Rosen Bowl Pub, which hosted the event, shared photos of the competitors as they fought to determine the top gravy wrestler and raise funds for a local hospice. According to BBC, hundreds of people watched as 16 men and 8 women participated in two-minute fights inside a, a padded 14-foot by 13-foot filled with brown gravy to the oh, brim. brown gravy. Gross. Yeah, not turkey gravy, brown no. gravy. That's I mean, even worse. I get, like, if you're going to do, like, ham gravy, sausage kind of... Swine gravy, I guess we'll call it today. What was that deodorant that was flavored something like that Ooh. that Terry was talking about? Oh, no, that was uh, – was it deodorant or was it 
It was lotion, suntan lotion. Suntan lotion. Yeah, they yeah. should have advertised that while they were doing that. I think that goes well. KF That's a great chicken and uh, the brown, brown gravy. gravy. Yeah. Wow. Uh, can I get some chicken and biscuits after this? Sounds greasy. Well done, Sadie. Boy, uh, gravy. That just ruined gravy for me. Good gravy. And then, like, when you get out, I guess, of the gravy boat, do you have to push the gravy down your leg to get it off? <laughs> I guess. You know it clings. You know there's that skin? Mm-hmm. When you let it sit a little bit? Yeah, that's gross. Mm-hmm. That's why the pools were green, because the divers had been in the gravy pool. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. That's what happened at the Olympics? Yeah. It's not like a chemical reaction because they mixed up the chlorine and something else? It's just a green sauce. It's a, it's a mild sauce. That's gross. Don't they sell those gravy skins like just in individual packets, like they're fruit roll-ups or something? <laughs> Ew. Ooh. If you dry them out, they're like gravy chips. Gravy jerky, right? Wouldn't it toughen mm. up? I don't know if it'd be that tough, but... No, that sounds really, Whoa. really gross. You want your cow say. news? Yeah, let's, your, hear it. let's get to the bovine, bovine news of the day. Nearly 20 cows were killed by a single lightning strike in Texas. What? Just days after, hundreds of wild reindeer were killed by a lightning strike in central Norway. Have you seen those photographs? Yes, that was like tragic. 300 reindeer, just dead. Just dead. One lightning strike. The news <sighs> emerged that 19 cows were killed by a single lightning strike in Hillsville, Texas on Sunday night. The cows had gathered under a large tree to take shelter from the storm when the lightning struck the tree. Witness Victor Benson told a local to a, uh, news station, all of a sudden the lightning bolt came down, the cows just fell. In the blink of an eye, a lightning bolt, and there, were, there was lightning everywhere, but just one bolt, and it was over. The dead animals were reported they were reportedly given away to neighbors to use for the meat. It was probably cooked, well, too. that's so great. Pre-cooked beef. That's a lot of animals being struck by lightning, you would think. It's a total loss of 21 cows, a total loss of $45,000. With the reindeer, Santa can't keep this up. Yeah. This may have just ruined Christmas. And in other cow news, officers in New Zealand are investigating reports that 500 cows worth at least a half million dollars have been stolen from a farm. Really? Locals said they've never never before heard of cattle rustling on such a massive scale. Uh, Willie Lefrink... That's the farmer. Willie or he's, won't he? He's a friend of the farmer. Willie Lefrink said that the milking cow is worth about 150 New Zealand do- or 1,500 New Zealand dollars and weighed more than half a ton. He said the cows could have been taken from the herd uh, near uh, near the town anytime between early July when they were last counted. So they're probably on the outskirts of town. Yeah. But I mean, seriously, 500 cows, you're going to need a, <laughs> a convoy to get those cows out of there and right. no one noticed. Nobody saw it. Right. Would you buy a car if it if instead of it had horsepower it had cow power? Yeah. You would. Is there milk involved? So there's I your, think it it runs on milk. <laughs> I'm lactose intolerant. So there's I your cow story. Wouldn't. 20 cows killed by lightning in Texas, Man. 500 cows stolen in New Zealand. Wait. If you have any information, please call local authorities. I bet they're not stolen. They've just walking they've walked away. They're 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 on the run. Just wandered away. They're probably in downtown sitting on park benches. I think I heard one walking around the studio. That was Terry. Sorry. I have a, a heavy gait. <laughs> He's got a very heavy gait. <laughs> Did you hear about this teenager that reportedly died from his girlfriend's hickey? Yes. I read that yesterday. The suction that 
created it created a blood clot, and then the clot traveled to his brain. See, the, the bigger question, he was 17, she was 24, I think, were the ages there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Not a lot to say about that, but just don't let 20-somethings near you. Say no to hickeys. I didn't, I mean, jeez. I, I didn't know they were still doing hickeys. You think that would just kind of... I thought that was something just in the 70s. Anyway. It didn't... Uh, <laughs> sound like those cows again. Um, any... Oh, we got a crazy story uh, about... Listen to this. Court rules for a middle school officer in a teen's burp arrest. Huh. He's arrested. For burping. Yeah. In class. Right. Disrespectful. Yeah. Now, did he stand up and like really make a show of it, or was it a whoops? Sorry. Well, apparently he was he was interrupting his middle class school with loud burps. Okay, sounds like he was making a show of it. And uh, the Tenth Circuit Court Appeals decision on Monday ruled that the officer and educators named in the lawsuit were entitled to immunity, and the arrest was justified under New Mexico law that prohibits anyone from interfering in the education process. Did they mean students or it's parents? Kind of, well, it's kind of funny because there's a lot of things interfering with our education process. Right. Some teachers are. <laughs> a lot of teachers are. Depends on the situation. The student was a seventh grader at Albuquerque's Cleveland Middle School at the time of wow. the arrest. He is not named in the documents. The mom's actually upset, right? No way. Yeah. Her her kid that was in seventh grade, now he's probably graduated right. high school the way these lawsuits go. Because the officers came in, they arrested him, they escorted him to a, the patrol car, they patted him down, they cuffed him. Wow. All for burping. Right. I mean, a lot, apparently. Uh, and taking him to juvenile detention center. He was then held for an hour before mom arrived. And then she argued her son's arrest was unlawful and resulted in excessive force. We have a uh, guest coming up here in a couple weeks about uh, the effect. Uh, he did some study on the effect of having actual police officers in schools. Right. And how things like this, where you have someone disrupting a class, turns into somebody in jail. Yeah, I was just joking. Instead of like a detention situation. I was doing the alphabet, Mom, in yeah. burping. Right. Why can't I do the alphabet? Uh. Uh, oh, boy. This, this actually sounds Bless like you, it was escalated mm-hmm. by either this is a constant pattern of behavior with him yeah. or maybe, you know, the mom comes in and is, and is belligerent. And so the school officials like, well, we'll show her and then you send the kid off to jail. You know, just right. things like this get amped up with emotion and then lawsuits happen. What do you do? Yeah. Well, you don't burp in class. Right. And they then cuff the kid. That's, you know. That's a little weird, excessive. I mean, they really should have probably taped his mouth shut. See, my school, they would take you to the library. They would sit you down. They'd give you a dictionary, and they'd have you uh, transcribe the definition of the word run. Oh, man. Which goes on for like six or seven pages in the you know triple column, really small print yeah. dictionary. Did you, were you burping when they did that? No, it never happened to me. It happened to other people. Yeah, other people. Like, I was a great student. You were a perfect kid. My grades weren't so good, but I, I behaved well. So now my kids will be like, Dad, why don't you come to school? You never come and have lunch with us. I'm like, kids, I don't want you to burp and stuff. <laughs> don't eat. That's sad. Oh, well. You shouldn't burp, kids. Shouldn't burp. Tell your children that. It's really good news. Uh, any other headlines we need to worry about? I have some TV news. 
What? As U.S. cable companies continue their respective uh, plots to stop the flight of paying customers, companies like Netflix, Hulu, Sony, and others are reaping their biggest rewards yet. Last quarter alone, an estimated uh, 812,000 subscribers cut the cord on pay TV services, according to a recent study. The numbers of cord cutters is representative of families that have elected to cancel bundled video services from cable, satellite, or telephone companies. Really? So 812,000 customers canceled cable or satellite I'm, subscriptions. I'm probably doing it this month. I'm taking the leap. The year-over-year numbers are even more telling compared with the same period last year. Cable companies have lost nearly 1.4 million customers. <laughs> and yet they won't lower their prices. Of course not. They're losing money. And they're not – it doesn't In seem fact, like they're being ra- nicer they'll raise either. prices so they can compensate for the loss. They are doing that two-year lock deal though. You can get the same price for right. two years. And yeah, you're locked. In, yeah, but it's still fifty bucks a month. But my, my guy, when when he hooked us up on the two year deal, he says now that means we have you for two years and yeah. we can do whatever we want to you. Well, they didn't say so that. Deal with it. Did they say that? I think that was the fine print. Oh, okay. Yeah, you have to read it. Yeah, it's a lot of reading. There's like some. Yeah, it's very volatile business. Very right now. very. In other news, one of Britain's leading broadcasters has blacked out its programs for an hour in hopes of spurring viewers to get some exercise. ITV shut down broadcasts on several of its channels Saturday morning as part of its effort to entice UK citizens to uh, sports clubs, which are being opened for free this weekend as part of a national event called I Am Team GB. It was tied in with the Olympics. Okay. So the TV network shuts down broadcasting for an hour. The intent is for you to leave your house and go do something physical. Go start walking, man. (laughs) No TV for you. Don't Don't people just change the channel? That's what I thought. It says, uh, it says, many viewers lauded ITV's challenge to couch potatoes, describing on social media the activities they were inspired to go do. Others, predictably, stuck to their sofas and poked fun at the gesture, describing the blank screens as the best entertainment they'd ever seen on ITV. Really? Yeah. Wow. One viewer said his remote control thumb had a good workout as he flipped through <laughs> other channels. <laughs> I lost two pounds just flipping through channels. Hey, we got one more thing that I really highly suggest. My wife and I have been doing it now for a week, and we we suggest everybody do it. Um, We got the idea from a text message from Anthony Gargiula, who showed parents of his – pictures of his grandparents who have been dressing alike. Uh Uh-oh. So they they color coordinate every day, and then they wear the same clothes as a couple, and they've been doing it for years. And so you're we'll doing, put that up. You're doing this? Yeah, we're starting to do it. Because the, the basic rule, I think, is, you know, parent grandparents that dress alike mm. seem to be more likable. Really? That's one of the rules. And, you know, if you dress together, you stay together. So I don't know if that's a thing. No, it's, it's a thing. Okay. Look it up under thing. Mm-hmm. That's one of them. Are you trying to sound alike as well? Are you going to mimic each other? Well, I think eventually, by the time you're 90, you do sound alike and you also smell alike. What about look alike? Sometimes couples you start will to like look like. blend you morph. and morph into a similar looking totally. being. Interesting. So uh, I just suggest everybody try it. Um, if she wears white, you know, white skirt, I'll wear white pants. Huh. She wears a red shirt, I'll wear a red shirt with my white pants. We. We uh, we just every morning get up and we say, "What do you want to wear today?" And like, "I'm hey, I'm feeling like blue today. I want to wear some blue." Mm. And she'll find I've got blue. Yes, I think this is accurate. 
That was good. I don't know. Just think it through. Yeah, I mean, and then don't do it. <laughs> well, it's super cool. Like when you go to the the, the uh, when you go to the theme parks, you can always find your spouse because she. And if one of you gets lost, yeah, that that always kind of bugs me. With an entire family wears the same shirt, You're like seriously, people. We're just trying to give you ideas. I mean, you don't have to do everything we say, but if you want to live longer and have a healthier marriage, you ought to dress alike. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we will be speaking with Daniel Arthur Abrams, replaying a, a, uh, an interview we did on what happens in a kid's brain when they hear mom's voice. Interesting, uh, interesting study. Stick with us. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, throughout your life, you'll hear countless voices of people that you meet and come across, but uh, many will be forgettable and even hard to identify. Some that you'll become more familiar with, you'd be able to detect and, uh, and notice later on in life. But if you listen to our show enough, you might even recognize, you know, even Ben's voice as one of our fans has fallen in love with Ben. Uh, he happens to be a truck driver from, from, I think, Idaho. Or he was in Idaho. Anyway, um, but studies show that there is no voice more important in a child's development than that of their mother. And here to discuss his research about the brain activity that occurs when um, children hear their mother's voice is Dr. Daniel Arthur Abrams. He's a Ph.D. at Northwestern University and specializes in auditory cognitive neuroscience Dr. Abrams, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey there, how are you? Great, great to have you on. This is, to me, this seems like a no-brainer, except you're validating some pretty deep uh, research. Um, Talk to us about what you're finding out about mom's voice and a child's brain. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's nothing... Uh, earth-shattering about uh, the idea that a, a mother's voice is an important sound source for kids, and um, and so there's no new new ground being broken on that front. Any mom will will moms know that. that. Any kid knows that, moms right? Know that, and anyone who's observed the, the interactions between a mom and her child, which is pretty pretty difficult to avoid uh, noticing. Uh, we'll we'll be able to kind of attest to how important a mom's voice is and how important mom is, of course, to to kids. Um, and so, you know, so that, that's not novel at all. But what is novel is surprisingly, despite you know m- many years of uh, research um, on the brain in in kids and adults and humans, um, no one had done the study to look at um, what what brain circuits are specifically engaged in kids when they hear their mother's voice compared to unfamiliar voices. And so, um, and so that was the study we designed and performed. Um, and that's why we're, we're talking. Here is now. it, is it, it's interesting because as I sit there and I think, um, I, I can maybe tell my kids something, um, and try to motivate them. Other yeah. people can try to motivate them, but what happens for some reason, when mom starts talking or mom gets serious, uh, does it calm the kid down? Does it does it does it just go deeper into their brain? What what's happening chemically in the brain when mom's talking? Yeah, right. So, um, so what I can tell you about is what 
particular you know brain circuits are engaged when a child hears mother's voice and um and and what our, what our study showed is that um, compared to unfamiliar voices, so these are uh, control voices that we also uh, played to the children while they had their brain scan. So as you might imagine, during the brain scan, children are intermittently and randomly hearing either their mom's voice interspersed with uh, 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 unfamiliar female voices saying the exact same thing. Yeah. So these very brief, and importantly, these are very brief sound samples, less than a second of, of speech in each of these utterances. And so, and what we found is that um, when a child hears mother's voice, um, uh, a whole slew of interesting brain circuits become active, and they include parts of the brain not only associated with hearing, but also parts of the brain that are associated with processing reward. Um, and there's a very kind of important brain circuit that, that's associated with reward processing. So, for example, whenever you hear your favorite music or if you eat chocolate or something pleasurable, this, this circuit in the brain becomes active. Well, what's interesting is that in a child's brain, um, when, when a child hears uh, his or her mother, this, this pleasure circuit, this reward circuit in the brain becomes active. Oh, wow. And so, so that was novel yeah. and, and interesting. Uh, in addition, other parts of the brain associated with emotional processing, such as um, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala, um, and this part of the brain also becomes active when hearing mom's voice. And also, finally, kind of the last interesting tidbit, which was very surprising, which was face processing parts of the brain. So these are parts of the brain that are important for discriminating between different people's faces. Also became active when hearing mother's voice. Now, the catch is yeah. that these kids weren't seeing any pictures during the brain scan. They were only hearing their mother's voice. They, they saw there was just a blank screen in front of them for all of the sound samples that they heard. There's no visual stimulus. And uh, nevertheless, when they hear uh, their mother's voice, these space processing parts of the brain become active. And so it's, you know, and we... We think that they may be you know, maybe some kind of neural form of uh, visual imagery for mother when hearing the, their voice. Yeah, and maybe yeah, they're starting to look for that face. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. yeah that's what? The idea. Well, I mean, in a, I mean, it seems like a lot of this, like the amygdala kicking in, because that's kind of isn't that the fight, flight, or you know, mate kind of part of the brain? Yeah. So this is an important part of the brain for all kinds of kind of emotional processing and fear processing. The amygdala is associated with a number of these kinds of processes. And, uh, and, and it's also an important part of the brain associated with just kind of interpreting emotional information and processing different kinds of effective information in our environment. And, uh, and, here, and here we are just hearing this very, very brief sample of uh, mother's voice, again, less than one second, of mother's voice is able to, um, you know, activates all of these different brain regions hmm. uh, simultaneously. Um, is there any difference with when they hear dad's voice? Yeah, great question. We've gotten that we've gotten that question a lot, actually. I bet. Uh, and and the answer is we don't know. Uh, we didn't study that. You know, mother. You know, in the in the uh, behavioral literature and the developmental literature, really, mother has this kind of privileged 
spot in the in the literature, at least, you know, uh, in the sense that people have been studying for a long time. For example, we know that 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 fetuses in utero can can discriminate and identify their mother's voice. Believe it or not, when they when they measure heart rates, fetal heart rates, um, they can determine that a that the fetus is able to hear and identify their mother's voice compared to other voices. So there's this kind of long right. and storied history of mother, and so and while of course we're interested in all kinds of different biologically important voices in a child's life, including mothers and fathers and caregivers and teachers and all these people that are so important to kids in their development. Um, we, we, we aimed at kind of the arguably one of the sweet spots, which is mother, just because there's such a big mm. history of yeah. studying this. It's so rich there. I don't know. If I were going to bet what you where the kid goes in his brain when we are talking about fathers, I'm going to bet he'll go to the video game section. <laughs> and and the overstimulation Force, section. section possibly that's right exactly <laughs> i know that's where, where my kids brains would probably go no so totally long. mine would too mine would know that they're probably going to be that a ball is going to be coming at them fairly quickly and because yeah, right. <laughs> i have five boys and so the minute they they think of dad they're like uh-oh there's going to be a ball watch for the ball that's right um that's what else what else did you learn cuz this is it's it's pretty telling that our brains Within one second, you found, right? So within one second, a kid can can determine if it's his mom or not instantly, and then it goes to that part of the brain, which which shows almost how automatic a lot of our processes are. Yeah, absolutely. That was kind of one of the really surprising parts of the result. We, we did not anticipate such dramatic results for such a brief stimulus. Right. And so it really does kind of reflect how... how uh, automatically and how quickly and efficiently the brain um, identifies this important sound source and then gives it access to all of these different brain systems. You know, we think that many of these brain systems may be important for learning. And so, you know, if the brain is able to quickly identify the sound source and then give access to this particular sound source, to brain regions that are important for learning, well, that seems like it would be adaptive and very important for child development and learning. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is really kind of, we were really surprised at how efficiently it appears the brain is able to um, to access all these different brain systems. It's powerful. Another really, another really interesting part of the results was linking these particular brain results to, uh, to behavior. Um, and uh, do you mind if I talk about that? You know what? Let's do this, actually. Let's come back because okay, I also want to get into the autism kind of side and the oh, autism yeah. spectrum, um, which yeah. was a, a part of your research. We're speaking with Dr. Daniel Arthur Abrams uh, from uh, Northwestern University about his research about what happens to a child's brain when they hear mom's voice. Stick with us, folks. Interesting stuff coming up. We'll be right back. Townsend Show. If you've ever had that, uh, your mom call your name as a kid and you immediately froze, maybe went into that little, ah, I'm in trouble, 
moment and your heart rate raced, it might be because uh, kids have a special connection with that voice. When they hear it instantly, they recognize it. And uh, there are amygdala fires in one example that we've heard, and which kind of turns in some of the you know emotional management, fight or flight needs kick in. But Dr. Uh, Daniel Arthur Abr- Abrams is talking about his research that he's performed at Northwestern University as a, an auditory cognitive neuroscientist. Um, and we're honored to have you back, Dr. Abrams. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you were talking about uh, the fact that when this... When they hear mom's voice, it, it it kind of it impacts almost an immediate behavior set. It prepares them to behave. Is that right? Well, I guess it's the way we think about it. We don't we don't know that for certain, but you know the way that the the results kind of turned out, it suggests that that kids that it kind of readies kids for lots of things that may be important, such as learning, um, and it kind of prepares. A- accesses different brain circuits that may be important for learning and social information processing. Hmm. And so I guess when you hear mom's voice, something important is going to happen, probably, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and this is maybe the brain's way of getting ready for that important information that she could be passing on to you. It, yeah, it's interesting, which, is, which would be super important for survival, right? Like yeah, connect course, to mom. Absolutely. Mom, mom could give you something, some, some super important information, uh, and, and you need to be ready for it, right? That's interesting. Man, I, I hope – you got to go do the dad research soon because, know. you know, if we don't have that going for us, then we do need to all start listening more to mom. Absolutely. You know, we've, we've, we've had that question so many times, and, and it's actually not an immediate thing that we thought we would – study, but we've, we've had so many questions about it. As soon as we kind of get sufficient funding yeah. to do it, that is something we'll definitely uh, turn our attention to. Another question has to do with um, adopted mothers and, and other kind of caregivers huh. that, that often raise kids and uh, from a very early age, and which is another very important question. And the question there would be, is there something special about a mother who carries the child versus uh, you know a caregiver or a mother who... Um, who does not, you know, who, who adopts a child. Yeah. And so it's another kind of interesting and relevant question. And I know another thing that you did pull out of your uh, current research was um, be- about social communication, because this is about social communication. And if a child has a language and a communication, a social communication impairment, maybe like being on the autism spectrum, what, what does that do with the child? Did you get into that research? Well, a little bit. Um, so, we in this study that we published that we're that we're talking about, we, we only studied uh, kids, neurotypical kids. These are kids that are that don't have any kind of diagnosed um, uh, uh, clinical issues, such as autism or dyslexia or other kinds of uh, brain-related um, uh, clinical issues. So, these are these are your kind of generic neurotypical kids, and so. And what's interesting is that um, just like any other cognitive skill, like reading or mathematics, typical kids fall somewhere on a spectrum of normal abilities, right? You know, some yeah. kids are just kind of better readers than other kids, and, and some kids are better at math than other kids. But all of them, even when they're all kind of normal, uh, and, and this is the case. There's a spectrum. Well, this is also the case for social function. 
some kids are, and when I talk about social function, I'm talking about kids' ability to relate to one another and communicate with one another, which is kind of separate from reading skills and yeah. language skills. Yeah. This is about relating and understanding each other. Um, and, and so just like these other cognitive abilities, uh, normal, you know, typically developing kids fall on a continuum for social abilities. Some kids are able to relate with other kids better than others, right? And, yeah. and they, they just have these kind of natural social skills. And what we found in our results is that um, those kids that had superior social abilities showed stronger brain connectivity when hearing mother's voice. Oh, wow. And, and so it, it kind of reflects, so here's, we kind of think about it as like a neural fingerprint for, uh, for, in, for kind of superior social abilities. Mm-hmm. So again, it kind of, these kids that, that have these, that, that are really social creatures, very the kind of most social creatures, have this kind of brain signature where they, um, uh, for hearing important voices. Oh, wow. Wow, that's, that could be huge. That's that's a and then another one we got to eventually figure out and maybe you've done this is what happens to a mom's brain when she hears her child's cry or her child talk. Yeah, actually, you know, surprisingly, this that end of the research is much further along. Oh, is we it? Do we haven't done this yet? But other people have studied um, parents hearing children. Yeah, which is interesting because I feel like society is so kind of child focused that the. These studies on the child's brain would have happened before the studies on the parents' brains, but actually it's been the other way around. Huh. That um, that these studies have been done in parents and actually uh, and, and and also in fathers, and um, and what's interesting is that basically the same set of brain regions oh, that come together light up as as in our kids. Oh my heavens! Voice. So it's like these. I mean, it's, I think what we've identified, and I don't, I don't know this for certain, but this is just my hypothesis. But what we've identified is kind of an all-purpose, um, important voice kind of pattern in yeah. our brain. Yeah, oh, interesting. Exactly. Oh, that's and fantastic. If you're a parent, if you're a parent, these things become active when you hear your kid. When you're a kid, we're, pathways um, are, turn on for when you hear your parents. Yeah, it's awesome. I think, and we're wired. It sounds like wired to to get these connections to make them happen. Well, Doctor Daniel Arthur Abrams, thank you so much for your great work. Keep it up and keep us uh, posted. We're going to take a break, friends, and come back visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. See what happens to our brains when we're listening to them. They always go crazy. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, rubber ducky, you're the one. You make bath time lots of fun. Rubber ducky, I'm welcome back, fond friends, to the Matt Townsend show. A little tribute uh, to the old rubber ducky song from Sesame Street. As we lead into our good buddies, uh, just make you feel so cozy and warm. Our own very, our very own Bert and Ernie, but no, it's Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Rubber ducky, you're the one. Hey. You got it. Okay, guess why we're playing the Rubber Ducky song? You'll never uh, guess. It's National Rubber Ducky Day. No. Oh. That was too easy. No. No. Let's say. Um, you got one? You got another guess? No. I'm thinking, but I don't have anything. 
What if you had a rubber duck, okay, and it disappeared for like five years? Okay. And then it appeared again. <laughs> okay. And when it appeared, you found out that the duck had gone on a trip around the world. Its favorite rocket ship, zooming through the sky. No. Oh, no. That sounds really good. Uh, no, the duck apparently went to 20 countries, created its own website, uh, its own Facebook page, Gail Ducky. Just go look up Gail Ducky, and you will see pictures of this duck all over the country, all over the world, and these people don't know what happened to their duck. Someone stole it, took pictures for five years. Apparently, the duck was drinking a lot. There's pictures of it, you know, at bars <laughs> And, and tipped over on its side. Having an amazing European experience. <laughs> had a huge, had a huge European nightlife. What? And then all, I mean, from Austria to South Africa, then all of a sudden the dog, uh, the duck appears again. Hmm. Now here's the question: Would you let that duck in your house? No, because generally they're going to be people accompanying it if they're taking pictures. Good point. Unless he's got another duck. Who knows? I do have a no duck policy. <laughs> like I, there's no soliciting. I yeah. have a no duck. You mean since the since that episode, that one moment? Since that one? Yeah. Since this, we call it the situation. The situation. It's known as the situation. <laughs> the situation. Yeah, that I, was no, ugly. As opposed to the Jersey Shore character. Well, they're very close, actually. Your situation and yeah. the Jersey Shore situation. Yeah. Very similar. Well, that was assumed. I, I didn't think we needed to say that. Well, yeah. and I've actually got video of it. If anybody wants to see it, just go to the Matt Townsend Show website. Of course you do. Mm-hmm. We've got video of... Go to the Matt Townsend MySpace page. MySpace page. <laughs> <laughs> Via AOL. Hey, um, here's a crazy question for you. You've it, got mail. Juno. <laughs> Netscape. <laughs> Netscape Navigator. Oh, yeah. What's your browser? That re- oh, that just brought back a lot of memories. I remember. I learned a lot on Netscape. Um, so what is the deal with everybody talking about Tom Brady's hair? Oh, because he looks like Gordon Bombay from the Mighty Ducks? <laughs> Ducks, fly together! That's it. Isn't that funny? So it, he's got a retro, it's like a 1980s haircut. To me, it seems totally appropriate and perfect. But people are making fun of him. Yes, every skateboarder in my junior high school in 1995 thought that was an awesome haircut. <laughs> Some people call it the Schrute. It looks a little bit like Dwight Schrute, but not as quaffed. In fact, I'm telling you, he is Emilio Estevez's character, Gordon Bombay, in <laughs> totally. the Mighty Ducks. No, in fact, there's a picture on Twitter with the with uh, Emilio's <laughs> shot. It's pretty hot. Awesome. He also looks like um, the Home Improvement Kid. Yep, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Yeah, oh, Jonathan JTT Taylor Thomas. for the win, man. See? A.K.A. Simba. Somebody said he looks like Megan. It's, Meg, it's Megan Kelly's haircut, but he's got brown hair from, <laughs> do, from do Fox. Think, do you think he cares at all? You know what I mean? Like no. He goes home and he's like, I am the quarter. I am probably the greatest quarterback ever married to a supermodel. Yeah. Crazy no. rich. The king of New England. She thinks. She says. I can shave my head. And Tom, y'all hair is very pretty. However she talks. She's. Brazilian. Oh, sorry. So. How would that sound? I don't know. You lived in Brazil for a couple of years. Do you want to give us a shot at that? I did. It's been a long time. I, I think if Giselle, is that his, his, if Giselle said, hey, Giselle, yeah, wear your hair this way, if she told me to shave my head, I'd do it. Yeah. Would you really? If, if your wife if, if asked my you wife, to shave your head right now, yeah. would you do it? Well, if my wife thought it looked good, yeah. 
It depends. I, on, yeah. I wear glasses because my wife says I look better when things are covering my face. Okay. <laughs> Listen, you guys need I'm, to talk to a marriage. I know. I don't even have bad eyes. Counselor, like, do you know one? Yeah, I know one. <laughs> but he's way too expensive. Oh. Can't even talk to him. Gotcha. Hey, um, you guys, are you doing anything this weekend? I'm wondering if you want to come over. We're doing a little uh, multi-level marketing pitch. Oh. Oh, uh, sounds you guys, amazing. It's Is Saturday. It control, security systems, or it's, solar? No, it's something different. It's juice. Oh. It's a juice that helps you regenerate. Oh, Herbalife? No. It's never been It's never been talked about. It's new. We so, would. We yeah. would. But you got we something going to. on? Um, because there's a football game. What? Three days away. We're stoked. Today's a Kafusi day. So ah. Steve Kafusi, defensive line coach, yeah. and his son Corbin, who is a dual sport athlete, basketball and now football, uh, they are on the show today. How Very tall exciting. is he really? We ask him. Yeah. Because six, in the ten, You need yeah. to measure him. Hoops, 6'9 in football. Don't he ask him. He's, he's, he loses an inch somewhere. I guess so. So why the heck is that the case? I, I, you know what? Get a tape measure out. So he'll be that. Both of them are on the show. That's a great show. Mm-hmm. What else? What else are you talking about? Oh, you know, there's some Big 12 news. Man. What? What? They have apparently reduced the number of candidates they have they have cut this is the bachelor for real okay holy cow get the rose big 12 and bob bolsby are the young lady that everybody <laughs> is chasing around <laughs> and she has distributed she's kind of crazy eight roses super hot <laughs> eight roses to the remaining candidates according oh. to a report from tmg uh tmz is it tmz sports TMG, TMG college, college sports. sports. Very different than TMZ sports. Wow. <laughs> yes. So, Luckily, they're not the source. Is BYU, and BYU's got one of those eight roses? There are nine, and yes. Oh, okay. This is scary. I didn't scary realize. delicious. Because <laughs> then what will be great is then whatever the decision is, they'll still have, you know, the the Big Ten Conference in paradise. See, you know how you know how the the bachelor or the bachelorette can give out an early rose, like early in the round, so you, yeah. you're guaranteed safety. Right. I feel like BYU has been guaranteed safety into this final nine, and so they distributed eight others to. But yeah, they have been sheltered, fed by the Big Twelve's care. Okay, <laughs> this is. I think honestly, it would probably make it more tolerable if they did do it like the Bachelor. Well, it's playing out that way socially. This is fun. It would get him. Can you would, imagine if this was a TV show? This would be fun. <laughs> oh, like Hard Knocks. Can every you imagine week you're tuning yeah. in to see what's going on? The athletic directors all standing in front of Bob Bowlesby. <laughs> uh, BYU, will you accept this rose? <laughs> I certainly will. And then, then there's always the mandatory uh, limousine scene where the one that was just ejected has to leave. In the in, in the limo. That, that today in East Carolina, they said, "Hey, we're out of it." Oh. <laughs> And it, and it looks music. like Colorado State and Boise State are out as well. Mm. No Mountain West teams, according to this report. It's yeah. narrowing down. So another off-the-field championship for BYU. They're in the final nine. Oh, this is exciting. The mm. report says it's whittled down to 68 teams, 6-8, to eight, and then it listed nine. Holy cow. <laughs> Here, here's the big climax right there. Ah! This is, oh, the epic song by Seal Yes, uh, that was featured on... Batman Forever. 
in the 90s. Those were dark days of Those Batman are, movies. Steel was married to Heidi <laughs> Klum at one point. Speaking of supermodels. Sup- speaking of supermodels. That, that's a 15 seed over a 2. That's you pretty guys, good. You guys, I got to let you go. Okay. It's but time to do a show. Try to use this music on your show. It's really Oh, yeah. Sorry. Never mind. We'll use it on our show. Have a good one, guys. Knock them dead. Thank you. Peace out. Oh, yeah. Mm. This is vocal point. Yes. Yes. Sadie Nielsen's guy, her stud husband, was on vocal point. That's why she fell in love with him. Which cast or which iteration? Uh... Two years ago, maybe? Two years ago. So he's not in it anymore? No. He's married to the Queen Sadie. So he got in after they were on that competition show, The Sing-Off? He, he wasn't on The Sing-Off. Okay. Mm. Hey, uh, as we wrap up this show, we better tell you about the main restaurant that just cooked up a 100-pound burger. What started out as a joke became a reality this weekend when a main... A restaurant, uh, Maine, a restaurant in Maine cooked up a 100-pound burger to celebrate its first year in business. The owners of Dorigo's Public House in Yarmouth worked all day Sunday to cook a freshly ground 70-pound beef patty that weighed in well over 100 pounds with all the toppings added. Man, alive. Customers purchased tickets for the chance to get a bite of the massive burger with a portion of the proceeds benefiting a local food bank. I think there was one guy that bought up a lot of the tickets. Yeah. He, he ate – I think there's one guy that ate uh, a, a good half of the, of the hamburger, and we have audio with him. Oh. Oh, boy. They defibrillated him. Oh, he's okay. Oh, he's back. He's back. Ask him – we'll give him a minute. Uh, we'll give him a minute to just shake that off. That's always hard to get all those uh, – Volts shot through your system. We'll, we'll get back to him. That's weird. Man, I haven't heard a defibrillator sound for months. <laughs> Hopefully not on yourself. No. Okay, good. No, it was someone else. I don't suppose you'd be hearing that sound if somebody was performing that on yeah, you? Yeah, no. I've been around when they're performing that. That's a back in the day when I was an EMT. That's kind of an ugly moment. <laughs> Usually they're dead. That's why we're doing that. Hey, a little uh, hero story for you. As you know, we love to talk about the heroes on the show. Shocked onlookers at a Georgia County Fair jumped into action to prop up a roller coaster that collapsed with six kids on board. Thursday at the Bartow County Fair, parents and other witnesses holding up the Orient Express roller coaster after it began to collapse mid-ride. When I saw the ride tip, my stomach dropped. I was scared. I was going to see dead people, the witness reported. Whitney Castro was at the fair with her child when she saw the commotion with 20-odd Good Samaritans who all rushed over to keep the ride upright. This roller coaster almost fell over with kids on it. If it wasn't for some quick adults, uh, this would have ended in a lot worse situation. I'm shaking, she says. Nobody was hurt. A lot of scared kids, though. This ride was being balanced and uh, held up by boards. That's the old fair ride. Watch out for those. Glenn Allen, spokesperson for Georgia State's Office of Insurance and Safety Fire Commission, said seven children aboard the coaster were rescued without injuries. And apparently it was all caused by a malfunction with the truck that uh, caused the, the ride to collapse. So... 
Thank heavens for heroes, folks. And remember, you're a hero. Just be there for somebody. Sometimes we all need a little propping up, don't we? We all need a little help here and there. So today, make it a point to look after uh, those that are in need. Ask the question, why weren't, why didn't so-and-so show up today? Maybe make a call. Let's just start taking care of each other. And when we do it, we elevate the world. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll be back again tomorrow. More ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Until tomorrow, make it a great one.